This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Hey, listen. Remember how you told me to toss those takeout containers before we left for vacation? And you were like, I'm serious. If that leaks over the counter, it'll be a slimy abomination by the time I get back. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Don't worry about it. I won't forget. (laughs) Well. Ooh, yeah. That happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Rinse after use if in contact with food surface. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. The year is 1972, and Paul, what is this podcast? Amy, don't ask me about my podcast. No, but what is the podcast? Amy, I told you, do not ask me about my podcast. What movie are we- uh, Okay, just this once you can ask me about this podcast. What movie are we doing? The Godfather. And welcome to Unspooled. I am your host, Amy Nicholson. And as you know, this is the podcast where we are going through the AFI Top 100 list from 2007 with my co-host, Paul Shear, who will be in here any second. And we are looking at these films week by week to talk about how they feel this year. Do they hold up? Are they epics? Do they deserve to be on this list of 100 films? And today, we are going to be talking about the number two film on the list. We are going all the way back up to the top in a way we have not done since our very first episode on Citizen Kane, it is going to be monumental. But before we do that, let us talk about last week's film, which was American Graffiti, the film by George Lucas before he made Star Wars, the film he made that was produced by the person we're going to be talking about today, Francis Ford Coppola, who made The Godfather. And I will say, as kind of a spoiler alert for American Graffiti, as we talked about it last week, Paul and I were kind of like, eh, it's fine, does not need to be on this list at all. Turns out when we kicked that question to you, the listener... You agreed. Facebook, on our Facebook group, people voted against American Graffiti at a rate of two to one. That is a very, very powerful people's voice that American Graffiti can go. Which is great, because as you guys might have uh, picked up on, we have been starting tiny little bits of mini-sodes where we're inviting on special guests, people that we think are talented, like Shea Serrano, to say what films would you want to add to the AFI list, pick three, That conversation, I think, is part of the reason why I like the conversations about what can go. And we just recorded one with somebody that we're going to be dropping fairly soon that I'm very excited about. So we got to kill to make room. That's that's the law. That's the Thanos law. So goodbye, American Graffiti. But as we say farewell to you, here are some things that you, the listeners, said about the film. Longtime lovely listener Melanie Maria Junkie Manning, she said, It is a fun, good film, but it feels a little bit like, quote, what Make America Great Again is all about. I mean, like for the white men, super awesome time to look back on. The good old days before the civil rights movement, before women's lib. I definitely felt way different about it than when I last saw it. 
And I think that's a very fair point. I mean, we have been talking so much about what Make America Great Again is talking about. And yeah, yeah, they're pointing to this moment. This was when it was great. And it is a, even if that's not a, at all what George Lucas might have meant, it's hard not to see it that way when it seems like so many other people do see it that way. So fair enough. Um, related to that, Michael Van Wagening said, you know, it's funny that Paul brought up Ron Howard's directorial career because when I watched American Graffiti with my 11-year-old, I was trying to explain what a successful and prolific director Ron Howard became. I was running down all of his most classic films, which made no impression on my kid because in the end, the only Ron Howard movie he had ever even heard of was, of course, the Han Solo movie. So it is funny how that all comes around, that we see Ron Howard in this film as like, oh, look, the director's acting. For the kid, I guess he's just an actor. Wow. And so for Michael, I'm actually kind of curious what Ron Howard films you're going to show your 11-year-old to start introducing them to the world I'm kind of tempted to go with Cocoon, which I think is the very first Ron, Ron, Ron Howard film I ever saw. I was too scared to see Willow when it came out. I got really scared. I read the books. I knew they were death dogs, and I just could never make myself watch the film because I had nightmares about it from the book already. But maybe Willow. I mean, maybe there are braver people than me who can stand up for Willow. But Cocoon is awesome. That seems like a good one. Maybe Apollo 13. I feel like Ron Howard, he made some solid films. I will even maybe be the weirdo who will stick up for Far and Away because, I don't know, I spent enough time in Oklahoma. I have to. And then since it seems pretty clear that we are saying goodbye to American Graffiti, I will close out with something from Tyler Lieberman. Tyler says, you know, with an ensemble cast of events unfolding over a single day and a DJ tying the characters together, wouldn't Do the Right Thing be the most analogous film to American Graffiti? Which, yes, and we have Do the Right Thing. So I think with that, we can wave farewell to American Graffiti without any guilt. Goodbye. And now, as we go into The Godfather, our call-in question for last week was, if you were going to ask a favor from the dawn on your wedding day, what is it going to be? Well, let's take a listen. Godfather, on the day of your daughter's wedding, I ask you this favor. Put the deer hunter back on the list because I love it and because Godfather Amy Christopher Walken is a beautiful man. Can we please do something about this King of Koopa? He keeps kidnapping my daisy. Don Godfather, will you let me pet your kitty? Hey, for my uh, little girl on her special day, fair uh, February. Go easy when you review good fellas. But yeah, Mother Monday. Please, oh please, my gracious Dons, can we please go by McDonald's on the way home? Oh, jeez, Don Corleone, I, 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 I didn't mean to bother you on such an important day for you. It's just my Uncle Billy, he done, he messed up real bad, and I, uh, well, I need $8,000, or otherwise the, the building and loan's gonna go under, and Potter's, he won't well, own the whole damn town, that spider. I guess I will be a bad godfather, because I'm not gonna go easy when we review Goodfellas. I'm sorry. I just can't. I just can't. I do, however, agree that Christopher Walken is a beautiful man. There's no argument there. As a Don, I grant you Endless, beautiful Christopher Walken. And with that, let's welcome Paul back in and let's talk about The Godfather. The year is 1972. Five White House operatives break into the DNC headquarters at Watergate Hotel, inciting a salacious scandal. 17 people in total are murdered in a terrorist attack in the Munich Olympics. Three American astronauts become the last men on the moon during the final Apollo mission. For the first time, people are playing Pong, watching HBO, and having cool-ass digital watches. The hot movies include Cabaret, Pink Flamingos, and today's film 
The Godfather comes in number two on the AFI's top 100 list in 2007, up a point from its number three position in 1998. Not too shabby. Amy, The Godfather, who's in it? What's it about? The Godfather. It is a movie based on a best-selling novel by Mario Puzo and directed by Francis Ford Coppola, who co-wrote the script with Puzo himself. It stars everybody on earth. You got Marlon Brando as Don Vito Corleone. You got Al Pacino as his son, Michael. You have James Caan and John Cazale as his other sons, Sonny and Fredo. You've got Talia Shire as his daughter, Connie. And you have a bazillion other people, including Diane Keaton, Abe Vigoda, Lenny Montana. I mean, the list goes Not on. Lenny Montana. <laughs> the Lenny Montana. Oh my God. Are you going to mock Luca Brasi? Because I don't no, think you really want to mock Luca Brasi. But you just put him next to Talia Shire as like one of the big names of the movie. He is literally a big name. He is literally a six foot six, 300 pound big name. <laughs> and it is the story of this family of Marlon Brando passing on leadership of the Corleone clan to his son, Michael, which takes many, many gunshots, bullet wounds, people running to Italy, people coming back from Italy, lots of murders, lots of fish, lots of dead horses. It's a real story. The Godfather is this giant film, right? It is it is number two on this list. Number two? We and haven't done a movie this high since our first episode. I have to say, though, I think it's warranted. I mean, this is, you know, in many respects, like the classic American film. And and I have to say, in, in watching it again, it really impressed me more than I've ever been impressed by this film. Because I think it becomes this movie. It's like, oh, The Godfather, The Godfather. Just like Citizen Kane, Citizen Kane. It becomes bigger than itself. And I think to me, I, I'm just like, yeah, yeah, sure, Godfather. But watching it, especially in comparison to the other films that we were doing, I was like, yeah. I think this deserves to be number two on the list. I mean, what do you think? I don't know. I'm really kind of torn. I think The Godfather is a great film. I'm going to mm-hmm. say it upright. I know I know that I've taken some grief for like droning on and on about Francis Ford Coppola when he was making Apocalypse Now. I mean, all the bad analogies in my head are kind of really dumb right now. Like the first image in my head is like watching The Godfather is like when I was a little kid and my dad would smoke a pipe and blow pipe rings in the middle of the living room and I would jump into them and just a feeling of kind of cozy, weird warmth. Oh, absolutely. I mean, this movie, there's something about the tone of this film that is just like, it feels like a winter day and you're in front of a fireplace and it just feels like home. I mean, it's the only movie that looks like it's shot in mahogany. You know, it really, I mean, it really looks, it. you know, this amazing, you know, this amazing thing. And I think it also has to do with the framing. I mean, it's, it's this like uh, tableau format. Like, so you feel like you're in a picture. A lot of the times you're just always at like eye level. It's always the POV of characters. It's, it's never, you know, I think there's like one aerial shot in the whole movie, but you just feel it's very intimate. Yeah, it's very controlled. Like you feel like you're in the hands of a great master who's in a lot of ways kind of like imitating or taking on or embracing the works of great masters. I mean, even this first opening shot you have of The Undertaker, Bonacera, you know, he looks like he's stepping out of a Da Vinci, you know, he's circled in black. It's just that one light on his face and he slowly emerges. And you feel like from the very first frame of this movie that the person making this knows exactly what's going on. Yeah. Which is why I find it really funny that my one kind of thing I I struggle with with The Godfather is I always forget what's going on and I always get incredibly confused about what's going on. Well, I think the plotting can be confusing, right? But the emotion is actually on track. Like and I and I feel like this is what makes great film. We've talked about this a lot. Spartacus. This reminds me of Spartacus and in a, in a few different ways. First of all, it's just about 
family, right? I mean, you know, uh, very much Michael is driven by family. His corruption is driven by his want to protect his family. And yes, the five families fighting and all that other stuff is kind of inconsequential. And Spartacus, like this love story and this triumphant story. And I think the making of the film also behind the scenes shares a similarity. You have this, you know, you have uh, Kubrick who had to work with Dalton Trumbo and you have here Coppola working with Mario Puzo. They're both writing scripts separately, then coming together and rejecting each other and then coming together again. Like, you know, there is a lot of people at play. I mean, Marlon Brando's a wild card, you know, whether or not his lines were all, you know, up on cue cards, we don't know. I mean, I think pretty much yes, but I think that like the one thing that keeps it on track is Coppola, I think, was so committed to making this and at a point in his career where he needed to make something good. He had a failure and he had this book. Have you seen the Godfather book? I have. I was reading. I read the whole thing. Really? Yeah. It's fascinating. I mean, if you don't know what this book is, it's it's, it's a giant like loose leaf binder where he is like put grommets on every page, cut out every single page of the Godfather, the book, um, and circled things and written things in the in the margins and it's and, and it's, it's a fascinating read. That's why I was kind of laughing that I got confused watching the movie again because mm-hmm. I had just read that and read the pages of the book in it. Oh, and I wow. was still like, wait, who's that old guy and why are they mad? Um, What's going on? I Googled <laughs> a lot during watching it just because I'm like, oh, yeah, what is it? You know, for for example, like I don't remember that like Abe Vigoda is Tessio and, you know, Clemenza is the other actor. Like, I just know what they look like and I know what they're doing. But, you know, when they like send Clemenza to get him, I'm like, who's Clemenza? It's because you're this movie actually does a great job of not over explaining. I think that that's one of the things that that Coppola really wanted to avoid is is showing you too much. You know, I think the five families, the meeting at the end of Marlon Brando kind of you know, tries to orchestrate peace there. Uh, it It's just enough. Like, all you have to do is just know enough, right? The family's under attack. That's all you really need to know. Wait, to, to catch yeah, up sorry. on like 8 million things. One, the book that we're talking about, by the way, The Francis Ford Coppola Diary of Making This Film, one of the things I thought was so fascinating was that he went through every scene and he talked about not just what he wanted to accomplish visually and what he thought was important, but what he worried that the perils were. And yes. it was so interesting that in page after page, scene after scene, scene after scene here, his main worry was like, this could be very cliche. And he was actively consciously aware of how cliche this could look from the vintage Hollywood sets to the mafia guys eating spaghetti. He was so worried about making it look fake that I think he really concentrated on making it feel real well, and making it feel like his family. And I also think what I love about it is that book, he said he used more than the actual script of the film to kind of always ground him. There are some things in that book where it would say like, you can't mess this scene up. And that's a scene where Michael is assassinating, you know, the, the famous scene, you know, um, he like, he's like, you can't mess it up. So it allowed him to feel so incredibly connected to the material and, and know from an emotional point of view where he's at. And I, I realized it was interesting. He stole some things from uh, Kazan, like the way that Kazan would break down scripts and and in the same way, like you said, like what are the pitfalls? What are the, what are they, what are you trying to accomplish in this? And I thought that was interesting that these two iconic Brando performances, you know, have this through line of Kazan, you know, from On the Waterfront and and this. Very, 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 very much so. I mean, because. Even to the point that when Marlon Brando was coming up with his big contender speech, one of the people that he said really influenced him in it was a guy named Ala Terry who was really connected 
into the whole like underground world of the unions and busting. And Aliteri is in this film as Solazzo. This friend that Brando had made back when he was doing On the Waterfront was here making this movie with him again. And they were just like buddying up. You know, there's this through line for Brando too. But then also one of the names that I saw written in that book a lot that Coppola put down was Hitchcock. Yes. He put down Hitchcock a lot, especially also in that scene where Michael comes out of the restaurant with the gun and shoots the two people. And I feel like you can see it in the way he keeps having us cut back and forth between Michael fumbling and not quite being able to find the gun. And then the police captain looking over his shoulder like, why is that guy still in the bathroom? And then he's fumbling looking for the gun. And then the police captain's looking over that edit back and forth. You really feel the pacing there. Yeah, I noticed that as well. I was uh, watching Coppola talk about the book. And so he they show a lot of images of it. And that sequence really does feel, um, you know, I- inspired and, and a, a tip of the hat. And it's interesting how as we watch these films and we're, you know, 60 plus films in, we're starting to see how filmmakers before the film that we're watching influence uh, the film that we're watching and how this film influences films in the future too. I mean, there's because so- Because weren't you just thinking of The Deer Hunter this whole time? Well, I mean, I was thinking about, so there's so many things to think about in this film. I mean, I was watching John Cazale uh, in this and I was thinking about, oh, I think this is the better version of the deer hunter. Like I, you know, I had issues with the deer hunter. We talked about it. Like, and I feel like this movie does a great job of conveying emotion and sadness and, uh, and a lot of stillness, but also keeping a film entertaining. And I think that that's why I love it so much. And so high on the list. Cause it's the perfect mix in my opinion of high and lowbrow. If that makes sense. It's incredibly engaging. It's like a popcorn movie, but yet it has all the stylistic elements of, you know, a, a more serious dramatic work. It's the movie, it's like Shawshank uh, for most people. It's like, oh no, I feel like this is something I have to watch. And it's, it, it, yeah, I I got this movie more. Like this in 2001 or the, the two films in rewatching that I was like, Oh, and I think it's based on the context, you know, because it it just felt like, right, yeah, I know they're great, but I'm like, no, 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 I see them as being really great because they are kind of studied in the masters and then they set the tone for so many things in the future, so much. Yeah, I mean, here I was watching this and thinking like, I know I love that wedding scene in The Deer Hunter Mm -hmm. so much for how it sets up everything that is to come, the feeling that you get from watching other characters in this one town come together and what their life is like and what their culture is like. And then you watch the Godfather wedding scene and you're like, oh, it's just as good, if not much, much better. I, it's much, it much better. Everybody. It sets up the dynamics between several of the different mafia people. Like I went back and kept rewatching the beginning because yeah. I always have to get to the end and be like, okay, that's who everybody is. Now I got it. That's Barzini. I have to get all the faces down and then rewatch the beginning and be like, okay. So it's Barzini who takes that dude's camera and has right. the people crush the film and you re-put it all back together. It's like Polygato, the one who's going to sell the family out. He's the one lusting after the bag full of wedding money and yeah. thinking, oh, if only I could take it. And everybody's actions that they do later on make sense. And all of these deals, all of these gifts, I guess you could say, that Don Corleone is doing with the people who show up in his room have such thematic resonance for all of the actions that are oh. going to come afterwards. Yeah. And that can I just talk about that opening scene again? It still has resonance, no matter how many times you've seen this parodied. It's such a, a, an incredible performance. And I think there's something that I love, you know, I love the way The Sopranos ends. And I know that, you know, there's a lot of debate and I think David Chase has come down and officially said what he thinks happens in the last scene of Sopranos. But 
what I love about that last scene of The Sopranos and the way I interpreted it, the way I watched the finale of The Sopranos and spoiler alert for Sopranos, um, is whether or not Tony died, you got to be in his perspective for a second and see how he lives his life, right? Who's this coming in? What's going on there? What's the sound? And you got this unease. And I felt the same way about Marlon Brando in the beginning. It's like, this is just, he's in here taking these meetings. He wants to be out with his daughter. He's got to go through this. Um, and you watch him on different levels. You see him hurt. You see him mad. You know, when you just, you watch him go through so much. It's, it's a such a dynamic performance. And especially since the last time I saw Brando, which was on the waterfront, I'm like, wow, what a versatile uh, actor. And I know I'm not saying anything amazing about Marlon Brando, but it is it is an interesting thing because there's a similarity between both of these characters, like a subtle emotional center to both. But wow, like what a, what two very, very different uh, people that he portrayed here. I want to even just play the very first opening lines because yeah. I think they are so beautiful and I think they set up so much of what's to come. This is from the Gravedigger Bonacera. I believe in America. America has made my fortune. And I raised my daughter in the American fashion. I gave her freedom, but I taught her neighbor to dishonor her family. She found a boyfriend, not an Italian. She went to the movies with him. She stayed out late. I didn't protest. I love this opening scene. I have a big thought about this. these opening lines. I want to hear what you have to say about this. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, it's setting up the idea that this man has been failed by America. You know, this is a man who really trusted in the American system of judges. Yes. To do what is right. He didn't want to get near the Godfather's family because he didn't want to be implicated in this mafia world. And here is a man having to realize that the American system that he really believed in is broken for reasons that really chill me today, that a girl was sexually assaulted and the judges can get bought off. And that is so dark because it is not any different. But I think what I love about this movie and the way it sets up Don Corleone and this entire world of organized crime is they are protecting each other. When America lets you down, these are the people that come in and make it right. Like they're viewed in, in many respects as the respectable choice. Like when you hear this opening monologue, you're like, yes, of course, I, I respect Don Corleone because what he's doing is he's making amends where America lets these people down. And, and I feel like the through line of this movie, the thematic through line is Michael being let down by America. Like he tried, he, you know, rebels against his father. He goes to the army, you know, he gets, you know, his awards. He's trying to do everything different, but, at the end of the day, he's still treated poorly, so much so that he's beaten up in the street by uh, that police officer. He is and will always be this other, you know, he and and so I think there's like this thing like America let him down, too. He did everything the right way. And he's like, you know what, for lack of a better term, like, fuck it. You you know what? You want to treat me like this? I'm going to go here now. And so you're watching these people coming here with this dream and then being let down or never being actually treated equal by this dream. And this is where the organized crime kind of balances out. And I kind of love that idea. Like it's, they are the, they're real justice. And I feel like it, it makes the mafia more elevated. And I think it's a conscious choice throughout. Like it doesn't seem like the mafia is just like killing people to kill people or, or doing anything bad. It, it seems like, no, 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 this is 
we are a respectable organization that protects our own. And when there's injustice, they're like superheroes. I mean, if anything, they're probably too nice. Uh, I would right? agree. I, I would mean, agree. Like, 100%. This mafia yes. is like, we love everybody. Yes. No, I'm not going to kill those two guys. I That's don't want to get involved in I'm narcotics. Yeah, I don't want to get involved in drugs. And no, you can't sell them by schools. And yeah. the proper thing, because they are racist, yes. is to only sell them to minority neighborhoods. So they're like, That's our moral code. Yes. Okay, guys. I mean, I, I think even Puzo was like, The script made them too nice. These are mafia guys. Well, they are I, not this nice. I mean, but this is the, you know, this is the fear of a movie studio making a movie where, they are a little bit running for, you know, the hills. Like, they will the mafia come after them? And we'll hear a little bit later in the episode from our guest, you know, how— We have a hell of a guest, oh, by the way, I mean, I Yeah, say? I mean, you cannot—it's uh, Carlo from, uh, from The Godfather. Yeah, Carlo. That's Johnny Russo. He is a kid who actually grew up under the tutelage of mafia boss Frank Costello. Johnny Russo, as Carlo, knows a lot about the ins and outs of the mafia— and knows a lot about the ins and outs of how the mafia finally agreed to let this movie get made. Because when we say the Italian Defamation League, we should be a little clear that what we're talking about is an ex-mobster, or I guess current mobster at the time, who was really mad that the FBI was trying to shut him down, so formed the Italian-American Anti-Defamation League as a way of sort of attacking the FBI for stereotyping him as a way of covering his tracks for actually really being in the mafia. And this is a movie that, you know, first everyone's nervous. Like, how are they going to be portrayed, you know, in this film? Is this going to be another kind of exactly what you said before about Coppola? Like, is this going to be a stereotypical scene that's been done that feels so overblown? Um, and I think because he tried so hard to avoid that, what it becomes is it becomes this iconic classic, so much so that the term Godfather wasn't even a term that was used in the mafia until this film, you know? So, you know, it, it be like, I think it's one of those things where it presents it in such a respectable way that it sort of becomes a, a, a nice calling card. It's like, yes, this is how I want you to view us. Exactly. I mean, it's kind of funny because even Mario Puzo would say that like, he didn't know that much about the mafia mm -hmm. when he wrote the book. He researched it all. He didn't know anybody who was in the mafia. Like he knew Italian people yeah. and so did Coppola. And so I think they gave that humanity to these characters. But Mario Puzo was like, actually, I screwed it up because honestly, you shouldn't even call Marlon Brando Don Corleone. You should have called him Don Vito. I didn't even know that. And now we just get this all wrong all the time. Right. Maybe that's part of the charm and, and you get to see everyone's take on it. And I think this setting the baseline for, you know, mafia films, you know, whether you're talking about uh, Goodfellas or you're talking about Departed or even Bronx Tale, like there's all these different ways of telling these stories. And I think what this movie does on the surface is humanize these characters. Going back to this idea of like, what's the emotional story? Like you watch The Wedding and you're learning about all these people, but you literally are brought into this mafia world through love and compassion and, and, and family. I think very quickly, this movie does a great job of showing you how loud their voice can be heard when they're trying to get Johnny Fontaine in a film. You know, you had this whole sequence, this 30 minute sequence, the wedding sequence, and then, you know, then they send Robert Duvall out to L.A. to kind of convince a movie studio exec to cast Johnny Fontaine. And you see immediately, like, wow, how they walk softly but carry a big stick. Like that, and, and, and that opening, what, probably hour tells you everything that you need to know about this film. Like, they are deadly, they are dangerous, they are quiet, and it's family above all else. It's, it's a great 
I mean, their first act is an hour, essentially, to kind of set the whole tone. And also, in real life, they're not that powerful. I mean, right. because here's the, the parallel I think is really interesting. I mean, The Godfather sets up this world where the mafia is able to go to Hollywood and boss them around a little bit. Mm-hmm. Even in the face of this studio boss, who in the book is actually more clearly like a very Me Too kind of guy who's mm-hmm. raping little girls who oh, are God. trying to get um, jobs at the theater. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I actually want to play a little bit of that studio boss, and then I want to talk a little bit about why I think there's a great irony in the idea that in The Godfather, the mafia is able to boss the studios around, when in real life, that actually wasn't so much the case. Well, here's the studio boss, Waltz, explaining why he refuses to cast Johnny Fontaine. Johnny Fontaine ruined one of Waltz International's most valuable protégés. For five years, we had her under training, singing lessons, acting lessons, dancing lessons. I spent hundreds of thousands of dollars on her. I was going to make her a big star. And let me be even more frank. Just to show you that I'm not a hard-hearted man, that it's not all dollars and cents. She was beautiful. She was young. She was innocent. She was the greatest piece of ass I've ever had, and I've had them all over the world. And then Johnny Fontaine comes along with his olive oil voice and Guinea charm. And she runs off. She threw it all away just to make me look ridiculous. And a man in my position can't afford to be made to look ridiculous. By the way, the glimmers you get in there of a Me Too era in the Hollywood studio system in the 40s are, like, much more developed in the book. There's a whole subplot in the book where Robert Duvall actually catches uh, the studio boss basically raping, date-raping a young girl who's, like, come there for an addition. And they, there's a sense that they use that as well as blackmail in addition to the horse's head. Oh, wow. So the book gets very Me Too. The book has a lot of sex scenes. It actually... Uh, Francis Ford Coppola didn't even want to do some of the the book when he first started to read it because he thought there were too many sex scenes. That's so interesting. Uh, I want to talk about this boss, and I want to get into another thing that was kind of eliminated or I guess maybe added in. So this studio boss, right, is believed to be based on Harry Cohn, right, who's the president and founder of Columbia Pictures. And was a giant creep to women, yeah. Yes, and he cast Sinatra in From Here to Eternity. Um, And even Mo Howard from The Three Stooges recalled that Cohn was like this real Jekyll and Hyde type of guy. And this is kind of a great scene. He goes from being so lovely to Duvall to this kind of anger. And And he shows a kind of power that the mafia doesn't really do. The good mafia guys never have to scream. I, I don't know how much the mafia has to do with Hollywood right now. But I do feel like it's funny that the mafia tried so much to get this movie shut down entirely and finally ended up having Hollywood win. Honestly, Hollywood yeah. was like, you know what? We just put up a couple of guys in this and we promise that we'll donate the proceeds from the opening night premiere to a charity of your choice. Right. And the they school. didn't even bother to do that. They didn't That's do that actually amazing. at all. And the mafia was just sort of like, okay, fine. So in real life, it doesn't seem that they had as much control. Well, I think, yeah, I think it just sort of, it's sort of a... Uh, Big fish, small pond, and and Hollywood's a big pond, and they're a small fish. It's just it's two different businesses. I do want to talk about Johnny Fontaine while we're here because I don't think we need to get into him much later. But Johnny Fontaine, uh, if you're going to draw any parallels or comparisons, you're going to say Frank Sinatra. Sinatra famously uh, hated that anyone thought this was him. Um, he tried to get his friends not to do the movie. Yes. He screamed at Puzo in a restaurant. Yeah, Puzo wrote an article about it. And, uh, you know, that they were at some sort of fancy dinner. It's like, oh, I'd like you to meet my uh, good friend, you know, Mario Puzo. said, Frank does not look up from his plate at all. And he goes, I don't think so. I don't want to meet him. And that's it. Like, that, like you know, and I feel like I just love that image of, like, just a grumpy Sinatra. Um, but 
it's impossible not to look at Johnny Fontaine and think that that's not Sinatra. I mean, there's no other like Dean Martin, I guess, but it's it's not the it's not the same thing. You well, know? the person who plays him, mm-hmm. Al Martino, he claims that this character is based on him. For well, real, this For is real. An, this is an interesting story, right? Because Al Martino was cast or wanted to be cast, but then wasn't cast and then comes back into the mix, right? Yeah, I mean, Al Martino himself was actually a giant singing star in the early 50s. This is okay. him singing. Here in my heart I'm alone I'm so that is the real life uh, Al Martino 20 years before he's in The Godfather. That's him. And he said that at the time he was like a big band singer. He was hugely popular. The mafia bought his contract. He tried to get out of it. He was blacklisted for a really long time. He had to flee to Europe that he lived this whole story. And so when The Godfather started to come together, he was like, I have to play that guy. I am that guy. Right. This is me. And they wouldn't cast him. They wouldn't cast him. And finally, he had to use his own mafia connections. Hilarious. That they cast this other guy. They cast an actor named Vic Damone. And that he had his friends make Vic back out, his powerful friends. I mean, I love it. it like, they made him an offer he couldn't refuse. Um, but he said that because of all of that, Francis Ford Coppola totally ostracized him on set, and it was actually really uncomfortable. Well, because he's a terrible actor, right? I mean, if we just say that, it's like, has nothing to do with his connections or his life. Well, maybe he couldn't act a terrible well. actor. He couldn't, well, look, he couldn't bring up emotion. They had to shoot him from behind for most of his scenes. Brando even wanted him fired because he said, this guy's wooden. Um but he couldn't be fired. So that's Al Martino in the film. And it's and it's the reason why I think you associate him with Sinatra because he's very minimized in this cut. Like, he is a figurehead. Like, you don't get much of him. I love the scene where he's crying and, and, and Brando kind of slaps him and says, you can act like a man! And, I, and that felt to me like an improvised Brando take. I don't know, but it feels to me like that's Brando slapping an actor that he doesn't feel is doing a good enough job to get something out of him. Like in that um, Stella Adler kind of method, like if I slap, if I can give you something, you can give me something back, I hope. Um, but it, that, that moment, uh, and I'm sure there are Godfather historians out there, but I'm going to say that I feel like that moment was, you know, it felt like a very, it's a big explosion. It's probably the only explosion that we see of emotion from Marlon Brando. And and it's over the character that he always says he loves, he loves, he loves, yes. he loves. He's got to take care of him. But he's disgusted with him. He's disgusted with him. And I also think that that's Brando being disgusted with himself as an actor. I, do you think so? I do. I, and here's disgusted why I'll say Disgusted with this. himself. Not as like his performance, but all the things that come along with being an actor. Wanting to be in things and, and wanting and needing to get a part. You know, Brando's coming from this place where he is kind of on the outs, right? He had done this movie. Paramount doesn't want to hire him so much so they're like- Nobody wants to hire him. Yeah, no one. They're like, you gotta, he's gotta work for free. He's gotta do a screen test and he's gotta pull up a million dollar bond. Like there's a million yeah. things. Cause he's gonna show up late. He's not gonna show up at all. He's gonna screw everything up. Right. We and don't want to deal with this guy. Also, he's only 47. You want him to play this ancient man? What are you doing? And, and I feel like Brando at this point in his life is in a bad place, right? What I love about it is Al Martino's character, Johnny Fontaine, is representing all that shit that you hate, that we all are. Like, you know, as an actor, it's like, you can pout about things. You can be like, oh, I should have gotten this. And and I feel like in that moment, if it is improvised, and this is my theory, um, that 
that's Brando yelling at a part of himself that he hates. I mean, it's, I like that reading because I, what the Godfather seems to loathe about about this character in the moment is that he has created his own problems and mm-hmm. he won't admit it. Yeah, You know that part of this is because he's been screwing around too much. He's not taking care of his health. He's dating some – or even got married to some, like, bimbo woman that's ruining his life, that he is sabotaging his own gifts. And so, yeah, the disgust of seeing a person sabotage their own life, I can imagine that Brando could relate to that. I mean, and, and Brando in this scene, what I, what I love about him and what's so shocking about that moment, why it sticks out to me so much, is this performance we were talking about before. It's so nuanced. It's so beautiful. Uh, you know, I think there's a whole thing like oh, we put cotton in his cheeks or whatever, and that's not necessarily true. That is apocryphal. Uh, it, they had a device made. Like I think when he was doing the screen test, he kind of shoved his cheeks in the way because he wanted to look like a bulldog or something like that. But like they did have in a real appliance. You can actually go see it at the Museum of Moving Image in um, in Queens, um, which I'd like to actually see. Um, yeah, apparently I think they just played a trick on him in a way, Francis Ford Coppola. Yes. Because Francis Ford Coppola really wanted him to be in the movie. And like you said, they wanted Brando to do a screen test. And he was like, there's no way he's going to do a screen test. They basically so I'm just going to go to his house with a camera and be like, let's just screw around and like record some stuff for fun. Yeah. And Not they, telling him it was a screen test. They, he literally said that he treated his um, cameramen and sound guys like he's like we can't speak there brando doesn't like loud noise apparently brando's like wearing earplugs like in life um and there we have to be quiet so they like had all these ninja signals like worked out to just not disrupt brando and 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 again this is the most parodied character and i guess what i'm realizing and watching it too is like oh you know i think of brando as like the larry king brando the very large brando and He's not very fat in this movie. And there's nothing wrong with being fat. I'd be saying like, but he's not, he's imposing in a way. Like when you see him later in the film outside of that tux, he's got very skinny legs. He's got a big body. It's it's interesting, like the way he looks, but he's not But then like, when he stands next to Luca Brasi, you're like, oh, you're a pretty short man, actually. Yeah, like Luca Brasi just towers over him suddenly. Yeah, it, it's really, it's kind of interesting. Like, but you think of him as this larger than life character, but he is, he's pretty, um, you know, he's 47. He's, yeah, he's not, you know, he's not like a grossly out of shape or, or in the way that we picture Brando in like The Freshman, you know, yeah. uh, another classic movie. Oh, don't that worry. Wrestling. I pulled a clip from The Freshman. Oh, great. Um, I, I, I oh. mean, let's just listen to the clip from The Freshman. I mean, this Got is it. like, this is him making fun of his own character. This uh, The Freshman, for people who did not see this classic. I love The Freshman. Is Marlon Brando being a godfather who takes a young... Matthew Broderick under his wing to steal what, a Komodo dragon? Mm-hmm. A oh, Komodo such dragon. a good movie. A but anyways, Matt, this is a scene where Matthew Broderick walks in the room, looks at Marlon Brando and is like, oh, isn't that the the godfather? Uncle Carmine, this is Clark. Hey, you know, you never told me your last name. Kellogg. Kellogg. Just like the cereal. Yeah. That's like right. the breakfast cereal. <laughs> you know, your resemblance Clark, Clark, to the Clark, godfather. Clark, Clark. I love that. And it's so interesting that this is kind of his last renaissance, the freshman, you know, like of Brando's career. And I love this movie. And I don't know if it's because I saw it when I was a kid or whatever, but it, it holds to me. I was really interested to see how Brando, who's notorious for not taking direction and abusing directors, how he dealt with Francis Ford Coppola, who at this point is a very young, inexperienced director. And this is a great clip of Francis Ford Coppola talking about how to direct Brando. I mean, Marlon Brando was an extraordinary person to work with, but it was it was magical. It wasn't, you didn't talk acting stuff with him. He'd come in and go, uh, and that meant where is the shot? And, and, 
and and uh, he he and I would work with him through props. I would put little salami out, or or I would t I would take a cat and just put, but not words. I would never talk about acting stuff. He would hate it if I talked about you know kind of acting talk, but I always worked with props and you know kind of offered him things that might help him in his. Uh, but he was a man of incredible intelligence, aside from acting, just as a, as a human being, what he was interested in, what he talked about, what he observed. He was pretty remarkable. I mean, speaking of props, I think my favorite one is the cat from the opening yes. scene, because what cat is that chill about lying on its back but for by that the, long? By the way, a cat that they found on the Paramount lot. Talk about props. They, they found that cat. They gave it to Brando. It's so loud that most of Brando's lines are ADR'd because it was just purring the entire time. Okay, I mean, that makes sense because I feel like most of this movie is ADR'd. Oh, I wrote that and down. And it really throws me off. I mean, if I can be honest, mm -hmm. the fact that the number two movie on the list, all the dialogue looks like it's coming from outer space and the people are just moving their mouths up and down, it, the, it the clashes a little bit in my brain. Well, I think what happens is this is a movie that is long, right? It's three hours or just under three hours. And the way that this movie has been presented throughout time, we can get into it, but you know, there's been like, you know, two nights on network television and they mashed the two movies together. And that was an epic four night event. So much so that even I think a couple of months ago, there's a seven hour cut, uh, you know, a chronological cut, you know, there's been so many cuts of this movie. And I feel like this is the movie when it comes out. And I watched the Francis Ford Coppola restoration cut, which is like the 4K version of it. It seems to be um, not much added or, you know, I think when you get into the additions and stuff is like when they start combining them um, or at least from my research. Um, but I feel like this movie covers a lot of ground. This movie is from 1945 to 1955. It's 10 years. And it, for as much plot as it does, it doesn't inundate you with so much. So I think what they tend to do is cram some shit in there to just like, like loosely connect it. Like to be like, da 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 da. I was like, oh, okay, I got that. Like, but that whole scene where they're uh, where they're killing Don Corleone's driver, and it's that beautiful tableau shot of like Statue of Liberty and like the, I'm gonna say wheat fields. It's not. Yeah, probably it's a wheat. little bit north by northwest. Oh, it's so beautiful. Uh, but like, there's so much ADR dialogue, and then I'm like, all right, I mean, sure. The whole movie is I'm like, kind who's of talking done with Muppets? Can we be yeah. honest? Like Marlon Brando's a little bit of a Muppet. Sure. I mean, talking like a Muppet. I mean, the, most of Diane Keaton's lines, I'm like, but she had lines. They're all ADR'd. Maybe they just forgot to give her lines. So afterwards, she was like, "Let me say something on the mic for old no. time's sake." I mean, Citizen Kane is perfect, and The Godfather has a lot of flaws. But okay, it's not. On the uh, the sound recorders engineers list number two, it's uh, oh uh, come on, uh, but <laughs> but I mean I will say this I mean like look we've been on this journey now like I said for sixty plus movies I looked at this movie knowing how long it was knowing I was like oh the Godfather I know I gotta love the Godfather but I have to say it pulled me in. And all of a sudden, I just started when watching, you thought you were out, just when I thought I was out, just like Godfather Three, um, <laughs> it, it 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 brought me in. And I, yes, I see all those flaws, and you're right about those flaws. And there are weird things about this movie, but in comparison to other films that we've talked about on this list, I'm in. Like I just like I was like sucked in the same way I think people feel sucked into Shawshank, and I think yes. All the pieces may not be perfect, but they fit together to form a perfect 
structure, if that makes sense. That's that's what I'm putting up. That's my at least thesis on why I think it belongs that high. I mean, I hear you. Like, what I think is really fascinating about this movie is that it does have a hold on me. Mm-hmm. I really do not like mafia movies as right. a general rule. I'm sort of like, ugh. But this movie is, I mean, primarily, we haven't even talked that much about it, was made for money. Right. Puzo was a guy who took himself very seriously as a novelist. Mm-hmm. None of his novels sold anything. He was a gambler, so he was always in massive debt. And finally, he was like, my publishers are always telling me to write something about the mafia. Fine, I'll do a mafia book with a lot of sex. I'll just sell a bunch of stuff. I need money to gamble it all the way again. Right. So that is his main reason for writing this book, and he's always been very upfront about that. And the same thing for Coppola. Coppola didn't really want to do this. They were like, you need to. George Lucas was like, you have to. We're going underwater. I need some more money to make right, our he, movies. He we're lost doing- so much in the THX like financing of that exactly. film. So everybody did this movie for money, including Brando. Well, I would and argue. Yet, it's but, good. But and- I would argue that Coppola didn't do it for money because he was not paid very much. And the reason why the budget of this movie went up was because the book got more and more successful. Coppola was a bargain basement choice. I mean, they wanted and they felt like we needed to have an Italian director here because it would make, you know, for a better picture because we've done these other movies where there wasn't, uh, you know, a, a lot of Italian representation in a mafia film. But they went to like Sergio Leone. He said no. Warren Beatty, no. Eliza Kazan, no. Peter Bogdanovich, no, which is so funny that he was in Goodfellas. Mm. Otto Preminger, uh, Sidney Fury, uh, Costa Gravis, Louis uh, Gilbert, Larry Pierce, Franklin Schaffner, Fred Zinnerman. Like, the, and these are names that you don't even recognize. That's how many people they went to to get to Coppola. Like, so I, I just feel I like- I think Puzo said that he felt like they picked Coppola just because he was so easy and he had just, he because he was so young and he had just directed two big flops so they thought they could push him around. Well, I mean, look, and that's always That's the, like basically Marvel. That's like yes. a Marvel strategy. Well, but I mean, I would also or say more that- like more like Star Wars. But this is how most of these directors kind of get in there. This Yes, you're like, can we control you? And I think what they found out very quickly is no, you cannot control Francis Ford Coppola. They wanted to shoot this movie in Kansas? Modern day Kansas? And, and he's like, wait, no, 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 no. Um, and, you know, and, and he fought to shoot in Sicily. He fought to shoot in New York and on the back. You know, they they really, like, I think for everything that you have an issue with in Apocalypse Now, this is Coppola under restraint. That is Coppola without anyone giving him restraint. And I think And I'm usually team restraint. I, I, by the way, me too. I, I think there is something about... As much as I am a creative person and I've, you know, I've now worked in many different, you know, places for different people, there is something to be said for someone trying to rein you in or bring out the best of you. And I think that this movie- Isn't that basically the job of a consigliere? It is. I mean, is maybe that's what the studio is to Francis Ford Coppola here, giving him good advice, keeping his him on a leash. Or, or saying you can't do that. Figure out another way to do that. And I think it works for the best. And I think that that's what I was experiencing with Kubrick. I think Kubrick, as a filmmaker, is a better filmmaker than Francis Ford Coppola. Controversial opinion. I don't think so. But um, with the restraint, you get this very, um, for lack of a better term, a popcorn Kubrick film in Spartacus. And here you get this uh, Coppola film, which is, again, it's this highbrow, lowbrow thing. It, it, it's a very interesting mix. You know, the conversation is amazing. He does that between the two films. We should talk about that at one point. But we should. I tried to go see it when I was in Spain last week. I and, saw that, and, you... I, and they lied to me on the showtime. Uh... They lied to me, and I showed up, and they're like, "It's not till you're home." But um, but there is something about like 
Coppola in this period, like where he's still like, I don't know. I feel like a restrained Coppola is a good Coppola. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. You're just imagining him in bondage. That's fine. Uh, <laughs> That's totally fine. Nick. Nipple clamps and all. <laughs> With a, a knife stabbing his hand at the bar. <laughs> Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I mean, what I really enjoy about the B-moviness of this, because I think this movie is a B-movie that just became an A-movie. Mm-hmm. You know, it was designed as a B-movie and then somehow got elevated. And so whenever this movie turns into a horror film, it's so creepy and so wonderful and so effective. And it actually reminds me of The Shining so much before The Shining gets made. You know, like when when Michael is in the hospital looking for his dad and you just have this like creepy record player skipping yeah. over and over again. I mean, that's horror. Let's listen to that. I know it's so creepy that's like the pre-Epstein scene you know he comes in to find that all the guards are gone like there's going to be a hit out tonight Um, oh god were you thinking of Epstein later when Don Corleone is like I want my son to come back and if he dies in any way, like say if he hangs himself in a jail cell, then he likens that basically to be actually, struck by lightning. I was actually Ooh. thinking about Robert Dobby from Goonies uh, hanging <sighs> from the jail. Um, I disagree with you, Amy. I don't think it was a B-movie. I think that Coppola refused to make that B-movie. So much so that they had a violence coach. Like, you need more violence in this movie. Like, he refused to put the sex in. He ref- you know, he, he had to be forced to add violence. That's why they that scene with Talia Shire where she's, like, mad at Carl and she's breaking shit. It was like, that was just an added scene. Be like, oh, we need more violence in this, I guess. Yeah, I mean, uh, you see that in his notebooks. He's like, I have too many scenes of people talking about other people and we need more blood. We need the horse head here. Yeah. We got to have this fight here. I mean, I think one of the things that got, gets lost, though, when you cut down on the sex scene is the contrast between the two women that Michael loves, between Diane Keaton and between his Apollonia, his Italian bride. There's so much to break down about this. And we haven't even talked about uh, Al Pacino in this movie. But I mean, but this decision to me, in this whole movie, is interesting the way it's edited, right? They do a lot of time jumps. Emotionally, you're like, what is going on? And And from him going to his relationship with... Diane Keaton, which is so playful and light when you see them walking out of Best and Co. And they're just, they just seem in love. And he feels like a guy who knows what his family is and he's avoiding it. And then when he goes to kill Salazzo, a switch happens. And it's very quick, right? Because you're like, wait, who is this character? And, and you realize how much his father means to him. And then you see that excellent sequence, and then boom, the next time you see him, he is now in Italy. We don't know for how long. We assume a little bit of time. He's still His face is still injured from the hit that he got, um, so it couldn't be that long. Um, 
And he immediately falls in love. And they just describe it by saying, oh, he got hit by a thunderbolt. You know, it's like, so just by looking at this woman, he's like, now I'm in love with you, which makes me question his whole relationship with Diane Keaton. It's a very hard thing for me. And I I really wrestled with that romantic subplot because why was he coming back to Diane Keaton? Is it just to legitimize him? Why is he in love with this woman so quickly when his life is completely in turmoil? Like, this movie is Michael's movie. Like, for as much as everything you see is Marlon Brando, Marlon Brando, it, this is about Michael's journey 100%. And that's the thing that as an audience member, I'm having a hard time reconciling his path. I love where it goes, but that turn, we don't get to experience that much. In it. And then they, and as they're doing that turn of him going into his family, they also do another turn where they just show him like changing his whole life. And he knew he was going to be in Italy just for a little bit of time, but yet he's like, no, no, I'm here for, I'm getting married what? I mean, I agree that the change happens really fast. I mean, they. I think one of the things that Francis Ford Coppola does really well is the kind of silent staging that mm-hmm. he does in order to get points across visually. So, you know, they're walking arm in arm. It's Christmas. She's talking about the presents. She's very confident in their relationship. She yeah. talks to him in a way that she does not talk to him later on. You know, when no. he holds out one information with her about Luca Brasi, she's like, tell me. And he tells her, yeah. you know, which she will not right. be doing later on. But they're holding arm in arm. They're walking. They're laughing. She sees the newspaper that his dad has been shot. And the first thing he does after he grabs the paper is he goes to a phone booth and he walls her out. And you have that beautiful shot that Francis Ford Coppola does of him on the phone and you see her eyes outside the booth. And she's Mm. never connected to him. Ever again, yeah. In all of their scenes up up until this moment, it's the two of them against his family. You know, he drags her into the picture. He's always walking arm in arm with her. They're sitting at the table for two instead of sitting with everybody else. You don't see them interacting with the family. Do you? I mean, I know the book makes a big deal out of the fact that Michael is Don Corleone's favorite son. Do you get that from this movie? Do you get like this, an you know, intense connection that Michael has with with Vito? Well, I think you get it when you have that really early moment where they're all taking the wedding picture, and Marlon Brando is like. No, 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 we're not doing it till Michael is here. Yeah. And it's one of my favorite kind of character introductions when you're hearing about the character and seeing their importance in this important man's life before they're even in the room. And just visually, they don't fit in at all. You know, she's in red, everybody else is in pink, he's in his uniform, everybody else is in suits. They do so much silent work to get you to understand how ostracized they are. And in the book, I mean, most of the sex scenes are like him and Diane Keaton just banging. There's a lot of them. And there's kind of this contrast in the book between him with this like liberated American girl who's willing to have a lot of sex with him before marriage and then having sex with a virgin that he just married in Italy. And the book is like real detailed with like virgins. Oh my God, they're amazing. And it's so much better. Oh, a virgin. And you're like, oh, but you really see this contrast here. You know, well, you you see a little bit of it with the way that her family's guarding her, with the way that they're being chaperoned. But you don't really get what his relationship with Diane Keaton was like, that they're like boning left and right. You know, they cut that out. And this is where I think wherever a, a book is translated into a film, you have to lose some stuff, you know. But it's hard to show that kind of, you feel manipulated, right? You feel like, oh, I thought this is what I was watching, this this relationship between them. And then he immediately falls for the other woman and maybe it's because she's more simple and less complicated. But I guess maybe at that point I can't trust Michael anymore. It's weird. I remember seeing the Godfather when I was a kid, I think it was just on TV or something. Mm. And her death in the car explosion has always been the main thing I remember from this movie, that yeah. and the horse head. Cause I was always like, don't kill her. She's so beautiful. Yeah. And every time I watch this movie, I'm again caught up. I'm like, no, she's wonderful. 
And you know, I've forgotten about that explosion. I, I, I just forgot about it. And in watching it, I was like, oh, it really did takes my breath away. Like you forget, you know, and it's, and, and you have that, I love, I love is like, you have that moment of realization that Michael has right before she does, like before she dies, yeah. Yeah, you just see it. And it's like, you know, his, just like his dad does when he sees yes. the people running before he gets shot, this moment of, Oh God, here it comes. Yeah. Just like Tessio does. Like all yeah. these men are like 2% psychic. Right. Yeah. They just know that something is up. It's like, it's that internal clock and they do a great job of showing that. I mean, his bodyguard, Kalo or uh, Fabrizio, like they betray him, you know, and, but it, it's yeah, such a great book. Mo- he like tracks down Fabrizio at a pizza shop when I was he moves say, to America yeah. and kills him. Ugh. But yeah, I mean, I go back and forth on like, do we get enough of who Apollonia even is besides being no. really beautiful? No, that's all she is. Like, it's a, you get this tiny sense that she could be fun. Like when she's telling him she speaks English. Mm-hmm. That's here. I English. I think she's yeah. funny. You get just a glimpse of the fact that she's not intimidated by him, you know, because yes. she's been so silent until she's married, and now she's like, oh, I'm going to boss this guy around a little bit. I yes. think she would have been a great wife. I, 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 there's something interesting because I'm like in the beginning when you're seeing him with her and the family, I'm like, oh, there's no fun here, you know. And that's why I find Michael kind of fascinating. Like, and she's he, only 16. Oh wow. I mean, yeah. the actress herself too is also only 16. Oh wow. I mean, it sounds like what you're saying. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'm putting words in your mouth. Maybe I'm just hoping you agree with me on this yeah. because maybe it is a little bit harsh. I think he switches too fast. I think this movie is about his transition. Mm-hmm. And I never really totally buy it because it just happens like that. I I agree. You know, and I feel like there's things that connect him from before and after. He is a man who's disengaged from his family. Mm -hmm. He's very good at being disengaged. And I think that emotional disengagement is what makes him a powerful boss. Yes. He just moves his disengagement over to a different level. He's always able to go cold when he has to. But it just happens straight away. Like he's he's smiling when he walks down the street with with uh, Diane Keaton when they're holding packages, and then he literally never smiles again. It's over. And there's something about the scene when he decides, like, I'll 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 kill that person, you know. And they laugh at him. Everyone laughs at him. And I guess I'm not engaged in his transformation. Do you know what I mean? I'm struck no. by it. I'm struck right. by how much I dislike him at the end when he has the door closed in Diane Keaton's face. But I'm never like, oh, is he or isn't he or what's going to happen? I'm not pulled along. They don't play that middle beat the way that they should have, in my opinion. And that and that is a flaw. Of, because that character, I think, and I know he got some flack when the movie came out. Like, oh, this is a, 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 you know, a character that he couldn't necessarily handle. I disagree with that. I, I think that he... His transformation is stunning and cold, but... It's believable on both ends. Yes, it just is like that centerpiece... We don't feel it because even when his dad is, he has the attempted assassination attempt and he's like living in that house of men um, and she calls, Diane Keaton calls and he's like, I, I can't talk. Okay, no. And like you see him in the, and you see them in the hotel room. It's interesting because he immediately shuts her down as if this has been a drawbridge waiting to drop. And you you didn't see that in the beginning. Like you don't feel that in the beginning. And yeah, I mean, that that would be my biggest issue with with him but i love i mean i love where it goes i mean i love where it goes i mean uh i just love all the little details of him in italy with the handkerchief you know the whole reason why he has the handkerchief the whole time is because and there's more in the book than it is in the film is like because of the way the medical care is so terrible in 
uh, in Sicily that, you know, they, his sinuses are, they can't fix the sinuses. So he's always running. So his nose is he's basically like dribbling a little bit of snot all the time out of his nose. I mean, to be fair, I think the point of this movie is like, you have to have gotten screwed up in the face in order to be the godfather. Like, unless you have chipmunk cheeks, uh, you, you cannot be the godfather. You have to be Alvin in order to take over. Uh, as the- let me just walk you through this and say this. So 1945 is the wedding, right? 1946 is when Michael murders. Um, 1948, Michael returns. 1950. You sound like these are horror films. I know. <laughs> 1950 is when he reunites with Diane Keaton. And 1954 is when he's the head of the family. And then 1955 is our final scene of the film. So in that 10 years, I mean, that's like, you know, we're, we're doing some giant time jumps. There are holes in the center, you know, like, um, I think what I, but where the shortest time period is, is between the wedding and the murder. Like that is about a year. And that's where we need to kind of live because I'll buy the rest, but I don't, like, there's no, he's not conflicted to leave Diane Keaton. You don't, you don't believe that he's going to go in and act. He was never a part of the family. Like, I just want to see that turn. I want to, you know. Yeah, because he goes cold so fast. He's cold when he says goodbye to her at that one dinner and he kisses her on the cheek yeah. and he's like, I'm leaving. He's He goes cold immediately. And I mean, I guess in a way that you could say that this is a film about trauma, like he's traumatized by his father shooting and by the fact that mm-hmm. the walls are closing in. But I don't know. I mean, if he is a war veteran, which we know that he is because mm-hmm. of the suit, in the book, it, he like yells at Sonny and he's like, you don't think I killed people all the time in the war? I know how to yeah. kill. And I don't know if I feel that he says here. That, he says that in the movie, though, too. But I don't know if I feel it. It's no, weird. No, I mean, but yet when he does have the gun, he's doesn't hesitate. The only fumble well, he does that you... hesitate. He doesn't shoot him when he comes out of the bathroom. He like sits down for a little bit and you have that kind of scene. I love actually the auditory way they put mm. you inside his head. Yeah. Where, you know, there's sometimes in this movie where they translate the Italian and sometimes there they don't. Oh, yeah. And right before he shoots him, they're not even bothering because they know it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what Salazzo says. He's not even listening. Because He's he... not there to negotiate. Yeah. Like, and it's so interesting. Uh, Walter Murch, the editor of this film, he said something really interesting. He goes, you know, it's it's bold even to have an extended scene between two main characters in an English language film speaking another language with no translation. But... As a result, what you do, you pay more attention to how things are said and what the body language is being used, and you perceive things in a very different way. You're listening to the sound of language, not the meaning. And, you know, um, I do think it's such a great, like, you know, Coppola says, well, the reason why there weren't subtitles there is because they're speaking so quickly, the subtitles wouldn't match up. And that kind of bums me out, because what I think is the more interesting thing is what we, what we're both agreeing to, which is. It doesn't make a difference. It's just noise. He knows the only thing that we're doing is we're in his head to watch him kill. Like he's not like it's like when you are having a conversation with somebody else and your mind is wandering for a second. That's what we are. He knows what he has to do. It's not a you know. It's not like something happens there. Not like something is going to happen there. It's like everything is on the path. Quando tu sta medio, il cane ti fa un e mettiamo tutto a posto. Steve Saria. You know, by the way, um, there's a real life mafia guy named Sammy the Bull. Mm, who, Gravano? Uh, 
I think so, yeah. Yeah. Wound up killing 19 people. But yeah. he said when he saw this movie, he'd only ever killed one person. And that this film really captured what it is like to kill somebody for the first time. Mm. The way that there's almost a tunnel vision in your head and the sound narrows. He's like, when I heard those train tracks, I was like, oh, that is exactly what it felt like to kill somebody. Oh, wow. And then Sammy the Bull was like, I actually really loved this movie. And after this, he started saying things like, I'm going to make you an offer I can't refuse. Things Jesus. he had well, not said before. Well, that's insane. The idea that the, the term Godfather being like taken into popular mafia culture. I feel like that pulling of the trigger is the transition. And from that trigger pull forward, I'm by the Michael that's like, I'm doing this now. But we kind of see him turn a little bit before that, too. Yeah, we're hearing the sound of that train as though it's saying, like, this is when your life is taking a new yeah. direction. You know, you cannot yes. come back to the station that you were at before. Yeah. The movie makes it feel inexorable that he's going to head in this direction. But I guess I just don't feel it emotionally because shouldn't this be a tragedy? Like, it's a tragedy to his dad. We have that beautiful speech Yeah. where his dad's like, I never wanted this for you. Yeah, you were supposed but, to be a governor. You were supposed to be a, yeah. Yeah, and I, I want to listen to that, too, because I love this the staging of it. Mm. You know, he has them face off, but they're not looking at each other. They're like, they're face to face, but on slightly different planes. So they're not making eye contact. I it's love, not I love that scene. It's Well, I kind of saw that as like, mirror is not the right term, but it's sort of like, past and future yeah like you're kind of seeing what he will become it's sort of like it's like a silhouette it's i love that moment and what's you know as someone who has seen all three godfathers not to brag um <laughs> but what i do love is that scene and what Vito does in this scene he really cares about family and he and Vito is successful right Vito is successful uh, michael is not and 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 we know that by the way that Michael dies at the end of Godfather Three alone, you know, and and Vito dies playing with his grandchild. Like there is something that Vito did it right, and and yeah, Michael Vito has a warmth. Vito Vito thinks life is beautiful. Yeah, and Michael doesn't seem to be alive ever. From Michael never. Life. Yeah, Michael never. Michael is protect the family at all costs. Because there's a line that Vito says early on. He goes, you know, a real man, and I'm butchering it, like, you know, must spend time with his family. Like, that, like that's the important thing. And Michael spends so much time protecting the family, he doesn't spend time with the family. Whereas you see Brando in multiple moments, you know, dancing, playing, um, you know, hearing these conversations, the, even the idea of, like, he was upset, you know, when the uh, the mortuary guy comes to him, like, you never came to me as a friend. And, you know, like, there's a hurt like where Michael would never even show that. Don this is Corleone the is a man who cries. He cries a couple times. Yeah. And this Michael, you can't imagine this Michael crying once he, no. once he turns. And I will say that maybe to go forward on my, my theory a little bit more, like, it's that's how far apart they are. Like, it's, it, it's close. They're not, like, they're not fully in line with each other. I don't know. Let's listen to this scene. Afraid I was, oh. and I never, I never wanted this for you. I worked my whole life. I don't apologize to take care of my family, and I refused to be a fool. Dancing on the string, held by all those big shots. I don't apologize. That's my life. But I thought that. But when it was your time that that you would be the one to hold the strings. Senator Corleone. 
Governor Corleone, something. Another person of Anta. I mean, Michael can't even engage with the emotion of what his dad is saying. Yeah, I mean, by the way, this scene written by, or ghost written by, Robert Town. Really? Yeah. Uh, interesting. A couple of directors kind of helped along the way. Uh, apparently, like um, Lucas edited the mattress scene, like that kind of all those, uh, you know, the death montage. Can It'll I be say an- another thing though yeah. that I think is really weird about this movie? Okay, so I really love Luca. Mm-hmm. Luca Brasi. I mean, played by, of course, the famous Lenny Montana. Mm-hmm. Lenny, Lenny Mont- Montana. <laughs> Did you know Lenny Montana? By the way, you know he was a boxer um, back in the day. He was a of course type everyone of boxer. knows. Everyone it. was yeah. a boxer. His name was the Zebra Kid. Really interesting. Why? Oh, I don't know why. Oh, okay. Just the zebra kid. <laughs> you sent me up for you want, no. Sort of, no, okay. No, but if you have a theory, I'd love to. Hear. No, I don't. I, I don't. I don't have any theory. <laughs> um, <laughs> but what I find so interesting about Luca, you know, he's famous for the speech. I want to play a little bit of the speech mm-hmm. to give to the Godfather at the wedding. His nervousness, this giant man, who Francis Ford Coppola is very determined that he should be overdressed in a tuxedo. He should look out of place. It's a great, and he, like this is kind of based. This whole scene is based on the fact that this guy did not know his lines, right? Like he was rehearsing his lines, rehearsing his lines, and I believe, I mean, again, tell me if I'm wrong. Coppola's like, you know what? Do that on camera, like. And and because he, he's holding a piece of paper with the lines written down, I'm like, are those the sides? Like, there is something really naturalistic about how uncomfortable he is. Exactly, because he's not an actor. Yeah. Don Corleone, I am honored and grateful that you have invited me to your daughter's wedding. On the day of your daughter's wedding. And I hope that their first child a masculine child. I pledge my ever-ending loyalty for your daughter's bridal purse. Thank you, Luca, my most valued friend. Don Corleone, I'm going to leave you now because I know you are busy. What I don't totally get Mm -hmm. about that scene, first let me say something I love. I love it when the kids run into the room. I feel like there is such a naturalism with the kids being yeah. everywhere. They're kind of just like little mosquitoes in this entire movie running in yeah. and out and buzzing and being loud, but making it feel like this is a family. And also I love that like Don Corleone's house is so small. Anyway, yeah. the rooms are kind of small and crowded way, that it you... is just overflowing with kids at all time. And I feel really claustrophobic. And I also feel like being in any of the rooms in any of these houses would smell really bad. Oh, I don't buy that. I think it would smell like great uh, Italian food. I mean, this is my, I'm, okay, I'm, maybe the mattress, yeah. maybe think of the, when I think about when they go to the mattresses, I'm like, Nine guys yeah, in no, that, that's, in a that's tiny rough. hovel. Yeah, that's I don't rough. want to yeah. go in that room at all. But what I find so strange is, you know, they keep saying Luca didn't expect to be invited. Yeah. That's why he's so nervous. But they've been friends forever. Mm-hmm. You know, that he was there when he was trying to get Johnny Fontaine out of his contract. When when war starts to happen, when the dad is shot, everybody wants to find Luca Brasi. They trust Luca Brasi. I don't really understand why Luca wasn't automatically invite like why well, he felt so can weird I, can i, I mean, tell you barzini's what, there for christ's sake like why is lucas so strange apparently about it? in the book this is more of a book thing Vito, and this is kind of talks about what we we're talking about with michael Vito was intimidated by luca because he was so violent and he had used him in the past and he was such a a bull that he kind of was like i don't like this guy like i know he's good but i don't like him I, I like that idea that shows that Vito is like a little anti-violent. I mean, you don't understand it here and there's no context for it. But I do like that that is the undercurrent. I mean, maybe it. it's that the way that Lenny Montana, the famous Lenny Montana, yes. plays him. 
He of just course. seems so cuddly. Like it's hard to imagine that being that Luca Brasi. But that's what book. I kind of like about like these. Like I mean, look, I'm from an Italian background. My grandparents were very. Oh, you uh, are. Yes, and uh, and so this has a lot of similarities in the sense that. Uh, like the wedding is very much something that feels incredibly similar to me. I'm not going to say that my my grandfather was in the mafia, but I will tell you Are that you his not business say it you partner went away for for dealing uh, in some a mafia business. And uh, there's some interesting people at the funeral of my grandfather that never saw recognized or anything like that. Are you letting me know you have powerful friends and I should behave myself? Just be careful, Earwolf. Uh, (laughs) um, But no, but like, I I, like, so there's some like, but I guess what I'm saying is there's been a couple people that I've encountered in my life that are very much like this, like a very cuddly guy that is not always the most cuddly. I mean, look at, look at Big Pussy on The Sopranos. You know, he's like a, like a, you know, a super cuddly kind of guy. Like, I mean, like, you know, don't you think? I mean, there's, there's guess, a history yeah. of that. That's fair. And the real Lenny Montana, you know, famous Lenny Montana, yeah. he said that one of the things he liked to do, and this is in real life, was he would take mice and he would tie tampons to the tails of mice. I love this. And then he would soak the tampon in kerosene and then mm. he would light the tampon on fire and cool. then he would put the mouse into a house so that it would burn it down. So, wow. Wait, wait, like, like, oh, wow. Like, wow. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> he was really into arson. He also would do a thing where he would put a candle in front of a cuckoo clock so that the candle you know, would get knocked over when the cuckoo came out, and then it would burn down the house. He was really into fire. Wow. Let's just talk about this horse head scene because I, like, I think we, we would be, uh, you know, be upset if we didn't. Uh, we talked a little bit about Johnny Fontaine. We talked about Waltz, the owner of the studio. This horse head scene is the quintessential scene or one of the most famous scenes of, of cinema. I found it's, it so upsetting when I was a kid. I was really into horse heads. Well, it's a real horse head. I mean, you know that, right? They got that from a dog food factory. <sighs> and so, like, you know, Coppola's excuse was like, well, we didn't say give us the horse. We just took it from, like, you know, like it was already dead. So we figured we'd use it. And, um, you know, but this is also Coppola who is like, uh, you know, where he's like, I didn't like that horse head scene in the novel, but I got to include it. So let me do it on the most intense way I could do it. Like, you know, crew members are freaking out because, you know, this is like, uh, you know, they, you know, Coppola again saying like, yeah, they slaughter 200 horses a day. I, I, I got this, you know, like, it's so crazy. And apparently they said that when that actor uh, shot that scene, he did not know that the horse's head was actually in the bed and his reaction to that horse's head is completely real. Now there's multiple shots, uh, but I think the first time he saw the horse's head, that's a real take of him seeing it in the bed. He just As thought in he like was, what they told him to get in the bed, get in the bed. I put mean, the sheet over your head or yeah, we're they, just going to put something in or, the bed. Don't or, worry about or it. Or maybe they, maybe they had it in the bed. He got in the bed Look, and, and then, I mean, you know, maybe they, he thought like, I mean, who knows? Like, uh, but that reaction apparently was real. I mean, like, and there are some crew members who have agreed that that is, that is true. Uh, you know, screaming is real. Um, production members said that this it makes sense. Um, so who knows? Well, let's listen to it because one of the things I also love about it is the way they take this beautiful score, this amazing theme. Mm-hmm. And they mess with it and make it kind of psychological and terrifying and turn it into kind of an arrhythmic, yeah. nerve-wracking version of itself. And then you hear the screams. Mm-hmm. 
this is the first time we see the power of the Corleone family. And it and it and it's a psychological moment. You know, it's it's there's nothing violent happening to him. He's not being tortured. He is being this is his prize horse that he's gonna stud out. But the idea of like going, here's his family, they look so nice, they're doing all these favors. Hey, and you know what? If you respect them, they respect you. And if you cross them, this is what happens. Like, and th- like at the, the end of this scene, you go like, got it, understand the parameters in which we're playing, and then the movie almost kind of goes. But that that like that's the setup of the, to understand like what the mafia is and how like how you don't want to fuck with them. Yeah, exactly, because they will cost you a six hundred thousand dollar horse, and they also are the kind of people who are willing to burn a six. They don't steal your horse. No, they kill your horse, and they put it in the most psychologically damaging. It's like they don't kill your horse; they behead your horse and then put it in your bed. They let you know they can get into your bed yes. without you waking up. And just the way they edit that scene, you know, the way they cut from him. From following his face as he discovers it, that little bit of blood on his shoulder to mm-hmm. seeing the horse, then they cut further and further back and his scream gets further and further yeah. away. That's beautiful. You know, that it's still so audible and echoey, you get the sense of the volume even as it gets quieter. Well, I mean, let's talk about that score, by the way. We've kind of referenced it now twice. It's Nino Rota, uh, nominated for an Oscar for his score, but uh, when it was actually withdrawn because they realized that he just reworked the score from Fortunella. But uh, but this is something that they didn't want. Paramount seemingly was against every great decision of this film, like because, you know, Coppola really wanted this composer. They said no, they fought him on it. Like, you know, um, but that the music here is is unbelievable, the way that it kind of manipulates. And that's early on in the film. So you're you're just sort of, I guess, getting the idea of like this, was it a Tarantella, like kind of this Godfather? You're, you're, uh, of the way it can kind of be constantly twisted or sped up or slowed down. It's, yeah, because it, it's it, so controlled at the beginning. Yeah. You hear it just coming over the credits, over that stark blackness, over the old-fashioned like serif font. Mm. I think serif fonts are coming back in, by the way. What do you think? I like the way you say it. Uh, serif? Am I saying yeah, it weird? Yeah, I've always said serif. Oh. But, uh, but maybe serif, I like it. I don't it. know. Omar I, I'm serif? probably saying it wrong because no. that's what I do. No, me too. I say everything wrong. I like serif. Let's serif. Let me uh, serif about it. Um, but yeah, I think serif. Now, now I feel like I should say serif. No, say I don't know. I'm, uh, believe me, I say everything wrong. So between the <laughs> both of us, one of us has got it right. Um, I think they are coming back in style because I'm I mean, sick of Helvetica. But I love you hear that simple score. And then in this version, it's like you have 8,000 music boxes mm. going at different times in the horse head scene. And they're just driving you crazy. And they're all whirling around. Because isn't the Tarantella supposed to be kind of a dance of the death? seems a little bit extreme. Yeah. But like you're just supposed to dance and dance and dance until you collapse, right? Yeah. I feel I, like there's spooky stories about the Tarantella. Maybe that's just because it sounds like Tarantula in my head. Do you want to talk a little bit about some of the other characters in this movie? You have Jimmy Collin, Robert Duvall. Um, I'm going to go out on the ledge and say not the biggest fan of uh, Jimmy Conn in this movie. I think he's like kind of like schmacting a bit. He claims he grew up in a neighborhood and he's just playing all the guys he knew. Yeah, it just feels like there's like he's acting like he's in a movie. I think there's a lot more nuanced performances, a lot more quieter performances. And he's the hothead. So maybe that should be the way it is. I just kind of feel like he's he's like, you know, bend it, don't break it. Like that idea. Like I feel like he's just like a little bit. I enjoy him in this movie. It's fine. It's good. But it's like if I was to like be like call out my performance, I'm like, eh, I don't know. I, well, I like, think his character kind of gets the short end of the stick too a little bit because like they're just like, it's Sonny. He's the crazy one. And they just keep saying it over again. Well, Sonny, we know that you get crazy. It's yeah. just, I mean, imagine if they were just saying anything else about him. Like, well, Sonny, you're a redhead. Like the number of times they just keep saying one fact about him over and over and over and over again. Well, I think he's definitely 
portrayed to be the wild card. Here's Pacino actually talking about working with Khan. I was more or less a sort of uh, just sort of wandering. <laughs> I didn't know what was going on. I mean, when movies were very new to me, and Duval would say before each take, he said, "No matter you know, what you uh, do, you're going to laugh on this take." And I didn't want to laugh. I want to hear this, Sonny, but if your father dies, make the deal. It's easy for to say he's not your father. Wait a minute, it's easy for to say it's not your father. It's easy for you to say it ain't your father. Fuck you and your asshole. Very nice, Jim. Thank you. Awesome. Come on, you asshole. You started it. I know you don't want to hear it, Sonny, but if your father dies, make the deal. It's easy for you to say he's not your father. <laughs> I mean, you know, that's like just from these improvised rehearsals they did. They did. They actually had a chance to rehearse these characters. Maybe that that that's the energy that you kind of need. Like, you need to find like these four versions of like who could be the Don. You know, you have Tommy Hagen, who's so reserved, and he obviously could never be the Don because he's not blood. Then you have Michael, who's so cold. You know, and then you have. Uh, Vito, who is kind of like the perfect equilibrium. And then you have Sonny, who, you know, is pushing the other side of that, which is like just, you know, a ma- like like a maniac, you know, like like um, he's having sex during the wedding. He's, you know, he's just, you know, he goes and beats the shit out of the guy who's like beating his sister, you know, like. And he has he- a lot of BDE. You actually see his wife. Oh, yeah. Demonstrating the size. of. Oh, his yeah, BDE. I know. It's so hilarious. New, new shirt alert. Um, but I feel like and that's what gets the best of him, too, is like the fact that he runs off. Although that plan is. I mean, you talk about that I plan. I don't being common. understand that plan. I'm like, so, so like the idea is like that Carlo yeah. is going to have his wife make him dinner mm-hmm. and then say he doesn't want dinner and then have his girlfriend call. Like he asked the girlfriend to call just so that she would get mad at him and then start a fight. Like he was like, I'm going to do these two things. Then she's going to throw plates at me and then I'm going to beat her. Like, I think how, the idea, the I think, the, I mean, it's, it, look, I, I agree with you. I'm going to beat her up and then he's going to get in the car alone. Like how does this whole thing work? It, it, I mean, look, it makes, uh, it makes no sense ultimately when you think about it because it, there's so many. So I guess you have to understand like, okay, so everyone saw Jimmy Khan beating the shit out of him in the middle of the street. That's in that the, amazing two tone outfit with a belt. My oh my God. gosh, we're gonna talk to that salmon outfit. Jesus. I mean, we're gonna talk to him in a second about that scene. But that's that's insane. Big beating up scene. It took four days to shoot. Seven hundred extras. Um, he got hurt because James Khan took a little serious. James Khan, by the way, uh, he also said that he invented the phrase "bada bing." Okay. But it just came out of him. Like, We're going like, to hear a little bit like more about Athena's James Caan. Yeah. Zeus's head. So, um, you know, so I guess the idea is like everyone sees that. They go, okay, his Achilles heel is uh, his sister being beaten. So we have to figure out and a And they're situation. like, we hate that about you. Yeah. We're going to figure out a day when we can get him out of his house to go beat him again. Like, So I think they were like, all right, so today's the day. It's Wednesday. Cause some sort of scene. Get everything going because we're going to get him to pay the toll and uh, and he'll, you know, I mean, it's when you think about it, I mean, look, but this is also like Puzo, when you tell me like, oh, he wrote this book kind of for money. It's like, yeah, yeah, all right, this is a hit. You know, it's like there's a couple of loose ends there. And I mean, in that and his assassination scene, and then, you know, the assassination scene was cost a hundred thousand dollars. Wow. I mean, it feels like they just wanted to outdo Bonnie and Clyde, right? Yeah. And They're it, like, oh, we're going to machine gun this car so good. And he's able to get out of that car. I mean, yeah. I mean, they really, they're drilling holes in it to make it look good. Uh, but it's like, that's a pretty, 
you know, I think he dies in an extreme way. He lived in an extreme way. And I think on set, he seemingly was this guy. Like, you know what? I mean, we've talked a lot about Carlo and 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 uh, and Jimmy Kahn. Maybe we should hear firsthand what it was like to be this kind of character and what it was like to work with uh, Jimmy Kahn. Uh, let's uh, sit down and chat with Johnny Russo. So, Johnny, when you were a young kid in New York, you met a lot of really major people really fast. I mean, one of the ones I want to talk to you about is Frank Costello, who I've heard is the model for Don Corleone. He was one of the models. Uh, I was very close to Mario Puzo, and we got into great conversation about it. Don Corleone was three guys. I mean, the image you saw on camera was Carlo Gambino. The... Olive Oil King, and at that time, and his family still is, was Joe Pofacci. And then when they reference, you have all the politicians and, and police in your pocket. That's Frank Costello. And now, was there an energy around this film uh, from your perspective? Like, was everybody gunning to be in the film? Or was it a known thing? Or you just you just kind of read the book and wanted to get in front of it? Well, I wanted to get in it. But only to find out that they're going with major actors. But then I uh, figured a way to get in. They had major labor problems. And uh, the Colombo family itself was uh, picketing the FBI building at that time. And, you know, was forcing the film to stop. So when I went, I went to see Joe Colombo personally because I knew him. And I said, listen, you're losing an opportunity here to make a lot of money. Let's correct what you want, what you think is defaming the Italian-American, and let's see if we can make this film. Right. And I know mob guys better than most people. All it is about money. When I told him he could make a lot of money, he was more interested to find out how to do that. And when I told him my, my, what I could do, what I thought I could do, and I did do it, he went on board, and we had a meeting at the Gulf and Western Building with Francis Ford Coppola and... Everybody else that was involved, Stanley Jaffe was the president of Paramount at the time, and Bobby Evans. No, wait, Colombo, this is the guy who was the head of the Italian-American Anti-Defamation League, right? Like, what, why were they mad exactly. at the Godfather? Like, what were they doing? What were they even trying to do to get the Godfather not to be made? Well, they felt that the, the movie itself, I mean, the book itself, defamed the Italian-Americans, projected them as gangsters and killers and which they are. I mean, I didn't know what, what me or he was looking into. And <laughs> him being a mob boss, that was the bigger problem because he was picking in the FBI building and they called him in several times saying, uh, you are a gangster, you are killing people, and you're protesting because somebody's writing about it. So, <laughs> Is it true he blew up the gates of Paramount Studios? So, you know, someone did a favor for him. He didn't actually order that. I mean, you know, there's so many wannabes, and still are. So they, they thought they'd send a message to Paramount, and they blew up the gates on Melrose. I don't know if you ever saw those gates. Wow. We're, not, we're really close to them right now. I go by them every, every day. Tell me, like, what is it like the tenor in the room when you have these guys, these mafia guys with Hollywood guys? Are, are the Hollywood guys a lot more deferential? I mean, what, what's the dynamic like in that kind of a room? Well, they, they were petrified. I mean, it's insane how this came about, but they needed, they had so much invested already in, in the, you know, the pre-production and, and the actors they already acquired that to pull the plug, it would have been costly because uh, at that time, Gulf and Western 
just bought Paramount, and Charlie Blue Dawn, I happen to know, at, at Milan, Italy, a lot of his friends were there, and that's where he got a lot of money to buy Paramount. So you can imagine, here's his first film, and if they pull the plug on it, they were already out a couple of million dollars, which was a lot of money then. Yeah. In 1969. Well, I mean, then you get in the film, and which is an amazing, uh, you know, accomplishment, but it seems like it was kind of hard once you got there. I mean, even from the first table read, right? Oh, everything was. There was a challenge because all the thespians said, who's this guy? Right. You know, they knew how big, and it was uh, actually Brando who brought it to my attention how important my role was to the film, because as he told Francis that day he was trying to get me fired, he said, this guy's got to be a great actor. He's never acted. So how does he get the part, marries my daughter, abuses her to lure my son Sonny to get killed by the Barzinis, has my son Michael dragged into our organization to just save all of us? this guy's got to be a great actor and you better think it over. And that's why I went crazy on him. And he thought I was a great actor, but I wasn't acting. I was about to kill him. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, so how did you go from that, from you threatening to kill Brando to you guys being friends and to him kind of being like an acting coach? Well, I, I, we were up at Patsy's on 119th street, which I used to be up there all the time. That's the Genovese family. And that's with Coppola had the rehearsal. Fortunately, so I felt good about that. Now, understand, you read my book. Nobody intimidates me. I don't care what your you know, position in the world is. I'm a gentleman. You be a gentleman. Because you've got a title or you're a star, I never let anybody abuse me. And Brando was about to get me fired. Right. And I just had this big party. And all my, everybody in the neighborhood said, how'd you get in that movie? You're lying. Get out of here. And I figured if he ever got me fired, I'd never be able to go back to the neighborhood. So I better straighten it out now. <laughs> well, then, I mean, you also had uh, an interesting relationship with uh, Jimmy Kahn, right? Like, I mean, that was uh, that was a relationship that kind of was tense throughout the filming, right? Well, that's Jimmy, I think. I mean, I don't, you know, I'm again, I was never on a set. I didn't know whether I was trying to give him an excuse. Yeah. Maybe he's in the, you know, the character Sonny at twenty four seven. He's an idiot. I mean, the guy's <laughs> a jerk. You know, I heard a story about him. Uh, about two years ago that an ump at a little league game that his son was playing at made a bad call and he chased the ump around the baseball diamond with a bat. This is like a little league game. (laughs) You can go on and on and on about this guy. He really thinks he's Sonny Cordelione. But why I didn't like him, he almost got me killed. As a joke, he didn't realize who he's playing with. You don't play games with Carmine Persica. Junior is a maniac. He, he just died. He was doing life. His son's still in Lampock doing life. You don't play games with these people. And he, he played a joke with me. What did he do? He got it... Tommy Bellotti and Boozy DeChico on each side of me. And uh, you may not know their names, but if I recall a situation, you'll know. Tommy got assassinated with Paul Castellano in front of Sparks. Oh, wow. And Boozy DeChico was the underboss to the Gambino family. And him and his son got blown up in a car. So, I mean, these are real people. These are not characters. Right. And they heard what Jimmy said to me when he came to the bar. He said, Junior's in the back with his daughter. Come back and say hello. So we all knew him. Jimmy just met the guy. So I said, I'm going to say hello to Junior. I go back there, hug and kiss, do the normal ritual. And I said to him, my, your daughter is gorgeous. 
And I know Junior 100 years. I saw his face taunt. And I knew, uh-oh. So I went down to the bathroom. Here comes two of Junior's guys. They're going to work me over. Oh my. Fortunately, Tommy Bellotti caught the move. He comes down. And he wrecks those two guys. And then we go up to see Junior. And uh, they bitched Jimmy Conn <laughs> for the rest of the night. <laughs> and oh, we wound wow. up owning Jimmy. We, I still own Jimmy. Jimmy's like a car for me in, the, in, my, in my garage. <laughs> well, let me ask you, like, I, you know, obviously this movie is so gigantic and the effect of it continues to this day. Um, what was it like for you when the film comes out? Like, was it an immediate switch? Was it, you know, obviously you said like you're still, you know, living off of this movie. Was What was the first time you knew that you were a part of something special, like when the world saw it? Well, I, to me, I've, I've always had, I mean, Costello made me a millionaire by the time I was 18. Right. So, I mean, I already had my 140-foot boat when I was 21. I had enough money. I had three houses already. So, I mean, to me, it was the ego and at, at 25, 26 years of age, I said, now look at this. I'm in a great movie. It was like one facet of the stone. That's why I went on to do 16 more that I own a piece of. And now 46. And we're wow. about to do my book into a movie. Wow. Who would you want to play you? Uh, well, we told Leonardo DiCaprio. <laughs> I think he's the best, the best one. Yeah, he's great. <laughs> but no, and I'm proud of saying right now, I could say this because the deal is done. Nick Villalongo, who won the Oscar for Green Book and Best Screenplay and Best Actor that last year, he's writing at 10 hours along with Colin Wilson of Avatar. Yeah, because wasn't his dad also in The Godfather? Did you guys know each other, Tony Lip? Well, I knew his father long before that even. His father worked for Frank Costello in the Copa. And Nick Villalongo was one of the kids at my wedding in The Godfather. Talk about... Full circle. He was like six years old, I think. <laughs> so wait, what did, what did you think of Green Book? I love Green Book. You know, I, when I watched Green Book, I needed, and, and I, you read the book, Amy, so the sensitivity of my, I'm not a tough guy, but don't get me mad. But the thing is, you know, I'm a gentleman, 200%. I never had handcuffs on, never was in jail. I moved over $800 million, killed three people, and here I am. So what I'm saying is I needed the sensitivity, the sensitivity of Green Book, that comparison. There's a, there's a whole other side of me right. that, you know, I just needed a hug. How did I get to Marilyn Monroe? She wanted a hug. She was in an orphanage at 12. I was in a polio, I was in a polio ward in Bellevue Hospital. You have to look, read through, you know, all, all the glamour. There's a lot of pain. There's a lot of suffering. And I think. I thought the sensitivity he projected with those two characters was amazing. Wait, yeah, because for people who haven't read your book yet, you knew Marilyn Monroe personally, like while she was living in New York. Oh, yeah. I met her when I was turning 16. <laughs> I'm the only person in the world that could say Marlon Brando was my only acting teacher. Frank Sinatra was my only singing teacher. And Marilyn Monroe made me a man when I was 16. There's nobody else can make that claim. No one. I mean. And it still goes on. <laughs> I mean, what period of, was that the period where she was making Some Like It Hot? I mean, <laughs> this is going to be crazy. I used to sleep in the New York Paramount Theater on Broadway. It was open 
I must have saw Some Like It Hot ten times. And I used to go there at night to sleep after I was done with my things. I'd go there. It was warm. You know, I masturbated maybe ten times watching Some Like It Hot with Marilyn Monroe on screen. Now I'm meeting her? Forget about it. <laughs> um, I thought you had this really interesting line in your book. You said, quote, the Godfather was a phenomenal picture, but it was a fairy tale. Like, what do you mean by that? Well, it was a fairy tale. I mean, because there's so many things missing in it. But, you know, they, they did what at that time could be done. But, you know, it, uh, it was a myth because it was three guys, not one. And it really doesn't operate that way. Well, like, is the idea that, you know, in real life, money matters more than loyalty or, you know, is that? Especially now. Oh, my God. That whole that whole thing is gone. It's gone, right. believe me. It's young kids dealing drugs, doing things, no respect. It's over with. When you shot your death scene, what was that like? Like that, you know, it's a it's a great moment in the film. But like, you know, to to do that is that an eerie was that an eerie experience for you? No, and that wasn't an eerie experience. Trying to do it was very difficult, and that's where Marlon Brando and I credit Marlon Brando. Because he wasn't even working that day, and he came on the set, and they were looking for the AD to, who gave him the wrong call sheet, and he told him, he said, no. And he'd been working the scene with me. See, when he was with Dick Smith getting four hours of makeup a day. Yeah. This guy was helping me. That's why I said he was my only acting teacher, because he said to me, you've never done this before. They're going to shoot this maybe 12 times. First, they're going to do a master. Then they're going to come in on a two shot. Then they're going to come in on a, over, over the shoulder on Michael. Then on you. You have to get that same energy up, that same fear. You already know you're going to die. You read the script. But you can't let the audience know that. And that's who he walked me through it. He said, when Michael hands you that ticket, look down while he's talking to you. Make sure there's a ticket there. It's like a baby with a security blanket. You, you still have hope you're going to get out of there. You know you're dying in the car in the next three minutes. But he gave me all that to cover the reveal. So, I mean, that's the only scene I really think I acted in. The rest was all violence and beatings and jumping all over. You know, it's, that yeah, yeah, scene yeah. was so sensitive to me. And then, you know, getting that emotion up, putting the tears in my eyes and hoping he'd let me go. We, this movie is not on the AFI list, so we're not going to get to it. But you were in Any Given Sunday. Oh, my God, yeah. <laughs> well, I helped produce that with Pacino and Oliver Stone. I heard you in the cast went skinny dipping. Oh, yeah, that was down in South Beach. It was warm that night. <laughs> we could, I could do a, a marathon with you people. You could. The movies I've done, Striptease with Demi Moore, Seabiscuit. I mean, there's so many stories. I was curious about one thing from the, you know, kind of the fallout of The Godfather, which is this movie makes the mafia look really cool. It makes mafia stories look really cool. And I was wondering if you thought that The Godfather at all influenced somebody like John Gotti to be like a publicity hound to try to get really Did famous. Did ever. John Gotti destroyed what this thing they call ours. And then right after him was uh, the, the, what's his name in, in Vegas, Tony Spilatro. I mean, they destroyed the mob as we know it in, the, in this country. Those two guys. So in a way, The Godfather helped inspire the people who then brought down the mob? Is, does it work that way? I mean, understand now, the Russians, the Albanians, these guys are treacherous. And I mean, again, now, the, I mean, the Italian mob is minuscule to what it was. 
Right. And with the, and right now with all the cameras in the sky and all the technology, who the hell wants to do anything? I don't jaywalk. <laughs> You knew Brando up until the end of his life. Like, how do you think he looked back on all of his career? Marlon, I love Marlon right to the day he died, man. It was, you know, Michael Jackson and Liz Taylor, and I was the ones that convinced him to get into the hospital. I mean, he was like 300-something pounds. He was my neighbor up on Mulholland Drive. You know, I helped him out with his son Christian, too. When Christian killed his brother-in-law, and Marlon called me that night because you knew I just beat a, the, the guy I killed in Vegas but mine was self-defense, and I, I got him straightened out. And Christian only got five years and wound up doing 36 months. Wow. But then he killed himself. Cheyenne killed himself. And Brando, I mean, Brando was a basket case at the end. It was a shame. And also, I think that affected his acting, too, because he would always kind of open himself up, you know, and then he, I think he had so much pain at the end of his life there, he kind of didn't want to go oh, back. Yeah. And go back Apocalypse into- Now was the thing that I think really... Got him crazier. Yeah. And drugs. I mean, he did so many drugs. I mean, it's crazy. I don't take an aspirin. <laughs> <laughs> well, this has been fantastic talking to you. We want to tell everybody to get your book, Hollywood Godfather. Listen to your podcast, uh, which is called Hollywood Godfather, right? Every Wednesday night, 36 hours. Hollywood or- Godfather podcast. It's on iTunes. Cloud. I, I don't know all this new stuff. I got the Millennium sitting next to me. She handles it all. Well, we will we will tune in. We will hear your uh, your episode about Brando, which will probably be out by the time this is out, so uh, people can listen. Uh, to actually, that. this episode we're we're doing tonight will be on Wednesday night. It, it encompasses my last few days in in Italy after the Kennedy assassination, and I had a big party at Presetto's with Liz Taylor, Richard Burton, Sophia Loren, Carlo Ponti, just a few people. But uh, before I left. <laughs> To come oh. back to America. This is amazing. Like you were, I mean, we are, this podcast is about the AFI top 100 films and you really have, you've crossed the path of so many people on this list. I mean, we just did uh, who's afraid of Virginia Woolf with, uh, you know, Burton and Taylor too. Like, oh my God. Yeah. Well, thank you so much to both of you. Yeah. Thank you, Johnny. Me on. Lovely to and, chat uh, with you. God bless you. I will start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time because messes happen because. Hey, listen, remember how you told me to toss those takeout containers before we left for vacation? And you were like, I'm serious. If that leaks over the counter, it'll be a slimy abomination by the time I get back. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Don't worry about it. I won't forget. (laughs) Well. Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Rinse after use if in contact with food surface. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispie, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Thanks so much to Johnny Russo. Uh, Check out his book, Hollywood Godfather, and his podcast, Hollywood Godfather. There are some stories in that book. I love it all. That we just well, blah, love it all. I'll just say bada bing. <laughs> um, all right. So now we, the only person we haven't really dove into, I, I think right now is Robert Duvall, who I love. I think he is fantastic in this movie. I mean, the Robert Duvall-ness of this film is kind of the stuff I like the best. My favorite parts of The Godfather are when men are in rooms that may or may not smell bad and they're out psychologizing everybody. And they're like, this is going to happen and this is going to happen. And they're playing it out like a game of chess. Yeah, You know, there's a lot of movies that are about giant elaborate setups and we're going to watch a thing play out. 
And sometimes they, they invite you in to understand it. Sometimes they don't. And this is a case where I feel like they invite you in to kind of play along the domino game of who's going to get killed next. And I really enjoy that. I like watching the psychology of like, be polite to him here, be a little mean to this guy here. And yeah. this is how you get Don't shake his hand. Don't yeah. shake his hand. Do shake his hand. Turn away. Light a cigarette. I, I love mean, seeing all that. Duval in that scene that we played earlier where he's with the studio executive, you know, that guy's losing his shit and Duval's just taking a glass, you know, sip of wine. Very I love polite. the I, I liked your movies. Yes. It's so interesting. And you know, so much so you're talking about that like that domino and things are happening. We leave essentially on a cliffhanger because, you know, they they remove Tommy from being the wartime consigliere. Uh, and you don't know why. And you get it, but you don't really get it. You really understand it in two. Um, but he's a little bit hurt. He's a little. You're offended. hurt, and it's like, but you're even the audience is kept at bay at certain decisions. I, I just, I don't know. I, I, but he, he's the one who doesn't make a mistake. I mean, he really is the most level-headed, forward-thinking guy. Um, yeah, he doesn't love drugs, but he's like, they're the future. We probably have to right. for the money reasons more than anything else. And in the book, they really get into more of a story about how his dad was an alcoholic and he was left alone on the streets. Mm. And that Sonny was the guy who brought him in because he was this basically street urchin whose eye was infected. He was worried he was going to go Oof. blind. And so Sonny just brought him home and said, we're going to take care of him. And Vito was like, okay. And they do. And that this loyalty he felt being a boy who was like, I think, 11 or 12 being brought in. You know, yeah. of course he loved him and he was really hoping to be a part of the family. And 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 it seems so frustrating to him that like just because he's not blood, you know, he yeah. gets kind of shoved around a little bit or, or that you really but, get a sense in the book of how much him being appointed as consigliere is why people thought that the Corleone family was weak. Like why mm-hmm. would they have a guy who's not Italian take on this if they weren't desperate? Oh my gosh. We are talking about a movie that, you know, has 18 people killed. In this, the whole film, 18 people killed, most of it done in montages. That includes the horse. Um, and it's a movie that no one really believed in and everyone was kind of afraid of. And it's a movie that when you talk about how it was put together, there's a million stories of how it was all edited and what the first cut was versus what the next cut is. And, you know, millions of scenes are, you know, written but not included, um, you know, re-edited. It, the movie is, I, I think it creates this interesting film that is incredibly narrative, but not incredibly straightforward. It, it allows you, and I think what you're saying is like, it is confusing at points, unless you've seen it a million times and you understand all the players. But I think what's not confusing is the emotional through line. And I think at the end of the day, there's all these issues that come into play. You know, there's bad acting sometimes, there's overacting sometimes, there's confusing plot holes, there's ADR, but yet it makes you feel a certain way and it moves with a pace that's kind of undeniable. And as someone who has watched a shitload of movies that have been terribly ADR'd and pieced together on how did this get made, it does a lot of the things that are notably involved in bad films and 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 does them really well. It's the, it's the exception to the rule. Yeah, I mean, I don't understand how this movie works as well as it does, to yeah. be honest. I like so much about it, and I also roll my eyes a little bit at the moment when it's like, okay, we need to really literalize the fact that Michael is becoming the godfather by, like, cutting between the assassinations and then him becoming the godfather at yeah. the ceremony. I love that, godfather, though. I godfather, love godfather, it. Godfather, godfather, godfather. I don't totally love it. Right. I think it's a little bit heavy. Maybe, I guess. I mean, you're yeah, right. It's fine, right. but it's just like, okay, okay, It's a great okay. sequence, though. I do like it. Um, <laughs> but, Amy, this movie comes out, and is a juggernaut, right? I mean, it, it is just next level huge. I mean, uh, 
does anyone expect this to happen when it comes out like this? Or is it like, because the book is so popular, so there's an excitement, right? There's And and this is not a movie that, because of the cast and stuff, is plagued by any sort of, oh, it's going to suck. It, like, it doesn't have that James Cameron Titanic energy to it. It just, I think people are excited about seeing it. Yeah, and, I think it's expected to be big, but I don't think it's expected to be Oscar worthy. Yeah, I mean, and it comes out and it's so big. And it's a movie that's one of those rare movies that it, gets all these Oscar nominations, but even when it airs on TV, it's setting records, like television records. Like people are like, now I can finally see it. And Coppola's like literally editing the movie, uh, you know, to make it palatable for TV audiences. But uh, I mean, this movie, like so many awards, but interestingly enough, um, it's the only best picture Oscar winner in the seventies that didn't get best director. Mm, that's so interesting. Cause I feel like it's better directed than everything else about it. I think the directing here is amazing. I yeah. mean, I mean, definitely uh, Gordon Willis. We have to just talk about. We talk about him a little bit. He's the DP. I mean, it is beautifully shot. I mean, yeah. beautifully it's shot. Black. It's beautiful. I love how they make you feel the difference between being indoor trapped with the Godfather and then boom, bright color out in the wedding. Oh yeah, or like in Sicily, New York everything. versus Sicily. The, New York is is grimy and dark, and Sicily is beautiful and light and airy. It's 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 unbelievable. Yeah, you really get so much emotion just from the cinematography. It's yeah. beautiful. It's really well done. And you know, and and the reason I think the not the reason. I mean, Gordon Willis is a very famous DP, but the reason why the movie looks the way it does is because they established um, early on they had to shoot the light had to shoot down on Brando because he had prosthetics. So that created a very much that created the tone of the film, you know, just sort of, all right, we're going to do this. And, you know, I know there's a lot of talk about the oranges. You've heard about the oranges. Like when the oranges come, it is, you know, it's a, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's death We're we're showing death. And, you know, um, the production designer was like, they were just used to brighten up the dark film. It's like, we just needed, we needed <laughs> color in this movie. Um, because I mean, it's so sad for me that you don't get to see him really eating the oranges. Like he buys them, but then yeah. he gets shot. Then they're in the <laughs> hospital room when he's there, but they're shrink wrapped in plastic, yeah. so he's not eating them there. No, and even when he makes them the fake mouth for the kid, he's just only putting the rind in his mouth, and that's going to be really uh, sour. By the way, not nominated for best cinematography, which that's is amazing. Wild. You know, it's best picture, director, actor, supporting actor, screenplay, adapted screenplay, costume design, film editing, sound, and score, which we talked about being revoked. It's interesting in a movie that looks this beautiful that like Gordon Willis does not get a nomination here and and pretty much goes nomination lists across the board. You know, that's in the Directors Guild Award. That's in the Academy Awards, the British Academy Awards. Um, it's in the Golden Globes. And, you know, he got this nickname, like the Prince of Darkness. I think people thought it was too dark, you know, it's um, which is interesting. But this Academy Awards ceremony, we got to talk about this because the Academy Awards ceremony for this film are as legendary as the actual movie. I mean, first of all, you have Pacino boycotting it, uh, boycotting being nominated for Best Supporting Actor because he had more screen time than his co-star, be uh, Best Actor winner, Marlon Brando. Yeah, I mean, it is interesting that putting Pacino in supporting undermines the whole idea that this is the story about Michael. Yes, but this is like but the big, this is the business Marlon of Brando. Hollywood. I'm always surprised how little Marlon Brando there is in this film. But yet he is everything of this movie. I mean, he is every, I mean, he is, he, if you were to take one image, you would pick Marlon Brando, even though it's Michael's story. It's, Brando is the, the specter. He's the Darth Vader and iconography of this film. I mean, like he is over everything. Uh, but then 
Brando is nominated for Best Actor and then sends Sasheen Littlefeather up to represent him at the ceremonies. And this is interesting because this is a time when, you know, getting political is not really a part of the Hollywood process. I think now people would argue like that that's a very big part of, you know, to the detriment sometimes of Hollywood awards. Like, or is it too political? But I've always seen that clip and I've never really seen Brando talk about the reasoning why. And this is him on the Dick Cavett show. And I thought this was interesting. Uh, there were a number of people that, that felt that Sasheen had not been welcomed and not been treated properly and people that were sympathetic to what she was trying to say. And uh, I received an awful lot of mail in uh, support of that. Uh, the booing made me sore. Well, actually, I think the people were booing at me. Yeah. Uh, they were booing because they thought, well, this, is, this moment is sacrosanct and you're ruining our fantasy with the intrusion of a little reality. And I suppose it was uh, perhaps unkind of me and, uh, to do that, but uh, there was a larger issue, and it's an issue that nobody in the motion picture industry has ever addressed themselves to unless forced to. And I thought that was really interesting. It's like, you know, I think that you think of Brando sometimes as this insane, you know, person, you know, who has like a laser pointer that controls Doberman Pinchers and, and, and he does and he did. And, but, but it's also like, I think what he was trying to do here is like use his moment to make a statement um, about something that was important to him. And, 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 you know, we, we are recording this today on Indigenous Peoples Day, not Columbus Day. And it, when I was thinking about that today in particular, I was like, wow, it's interesting. He's kind of ahead of the curve here. He's like, he's making a statement that is important. And, and it's been mocked, you know, uh, universally. And I just thought it was interesting to hear that, uh, you know, in the grand scheme of things, and especially on Today of All Days. Yeah, and I feel like we should listen to a little bit of her speech, yeah. you know, of what she said. She ha had been given like a 15-page letter by Brando <laughs> that she had intended to read. And they were like, you have 60 seconds and yeah, that's sure. it. So she had to kind of wing it. But I think it's important to hear the booze as well. You know, she really composed herself with kind of a Robert Duvall dignity. Hello, my name is Sasheen Littlefeather. I'm Apache and I'm president of the National Native American Affirmative Image Committee. I'm representing Marlon Brando this evening and he has asked me to tell you in a very long speech, which I cannot share with you presently because of time, but I will be glad to share with the press afterwards that he very regretfully cannot accept this very generous award. And the reasons for this being are the treatment of American Indians today by the film industry, excuse me, I mean, those boos, I find that incredibly chilling, Yeah, honestly. And even today, she still gets really made fun of. I think it was uh, Dennis Miller or probably somebody was like- Sasheen Littlefeather. Yeah. <laughs> he like referred to her as like some sort of prostitute or something because she had posed for Playboy. She had posed for Playboy before this happened and then they didn't run Who it. Cares? And then Playboy like capitalized on it after this and they ran her naked pictures. It's like the same thing happened with Miss America. Remember it was like- oh, yeah. Yeah, it's like- but. Exactly. It, it's such she an was interesting... like trying to break it and break in Hollywood as an actress, and then uh, 
And then this, she got boycotted after this. She said she was blacklisted. Of course. She never had a career. And I just find all of that really unfair. I mean, it really is, especially because, again, speaking about why it was happening, what I think the point of view was good and it was ahead of its time. You know, uh, she's only doing what the mafia literally did to Paramount, which is like, don't present us in a way that is offensive anymore. You know, we demand respect. And, you know, it's it's taken a long time. And I don't think we're there, but, you know, we're getting closer, you know, to this respect of other people's communities, beliefs, and everything. It's its an interesting thing. Amy, did everyone love this movie? Most people did love this movie, but I do have one very, very, very negative review from our good old buddy, Stanley Kaufman of The New Republic. Okay. So Stanley Kaufman first just goes really hard on Marlon Brando, and he talks about how, like, Hurricane Marlon is sweeping the country, and he basically is like, no way. That, yes, everybody's saying that this is the movie where the lapsed great actor has regained himself, but he's like, no. He says that this Brando doesn't even have Don Corleone's voice under control, and that insecurity and its assumptions streak the job. He says that they've put padding in Brando's cheeks and dirtied his teeth. He speaks hoarsely and moves stiffly, and that these combined mechanics are hailed as great acting. But he's basically saying that he doesn't see how any gifted actor could have done less than Brando does here, and that he's handicapped by his poor makeup, that his hair is not gray enough, that his hairline ought to have been altered so that he doesn't constantly suggest Brando. And he says that this is a performance that is just lax and full of sloth, and that it's just easy effects. It's it's just all surface. And then after going super hard on Brando and saying that he's still asleep, that his great talent has not awakened yet... Then he gets mad at the movie and he says, like, you know, we're all talking about this movie as being big and grand and having all these things to say about how the mafia is basically capitalism. And he thinks all of that is basically what he calls, like, quote unquote, high school analogies. And he's just like, this movie goes on way too long. It's just a bunch of episodes. Nothing really happens. Yes, the mafia loses its morality, but it takes forever to get there. He says that Al Pacino rattles around in a part too demanding for him. He says that James Conn is okay. He calls the score by Nino Rota surprisingly rotten. And then he says that Francis Ford Coppola has saved all of his limited ingenuity for the shootings and stranglings, which are among the most vicious I can remember on film, and that the print of the picture showed to him had very washed out colors. It's so interesting because obviously, you know, this movie goes on to become a giant hit and Marlon Brando's role is iconic. and, And I wonder, you know, to each their own, obviously, but it's interesting, like how he really seems to have it out for Brando in a very intense way. Like even knowing that that first letter or the first word he says is Brando, not Corleone. It's it's a uh, it seems like there's a an axe to grind. But I always read those, and maybe it's always interesting to be a contrarian when everyone is surrounding something so greatly. Like you can always find a hole in everything. I mean, you know, you and I know it with uh, Green Book. Um, <laughs> uh, but Amy, I asked this, I, I just say this. I'm not even going to ask it. Play me the Simpsons clip or play me a Oh my God. Simpsons clip. There are so many Simpsons clips. I mean, clips. of course. There's so many. There's so many. Okay. The one that I picked is uh, the most literal. This is from an episode called Mo Baby Blues in okay. which Mo decides that he is absolutely besotted with babysitting Maggie. And so he's always taking care of Maggie, totally in love with Maggie, and he decides to tell Maggie a bedtime story. Oh, I got one. It starts out with a beautiful wedding, but the father of the bride was nowhere to be seen. He was granting favors to all of his bestest buddies. I think we could scare that movie producer by putting a horse's blanket in his bed. Imagine waking up and seeing you got the wrong kind of blanket. Uh, how about a horse's head? Oh, you see here, yeah, that's why you're the godfather. 
And the Godfather's playing with his grandson, see? So he, he sticks an orange in his mouth, like this. Okay. Don Barzini gets whacked. Tessio, oh, you won't see him no more. Mo Green, bam! He gets it right in the eye. And Michael is now the new Godfather. And he shuts the door on Annie Hall. <laughs> I love it. Ah, uh, yes, it is a bedtime story. That is so great. Um, I mean, is it weird that it does sort of feel like a bedtime story to me too? Because this is just a movie I've known since before I was born. Like, this is an American bedtime story. This absolutely. is an American story. It is the American bedtime story for the those of us who just want to know that America's rotten. <laughs> um, well, Amy. We've debated it a lot so far, and I think we both agree that this belongs on the AFI list, but this high? Who knows? I mean, it feels too... I feel like number two means a movie should be perfect or flawless. And it's hard for me to say that this deserves to be up that high. But I I think it is just most captivating to me right now to figure out why that still feels right, why this movie has some sort of weird hold. And it's interesting. I wonder if it's, you know, this is a movie about abusive relationships mm. you know to me i think that is the most interesting core of it is that all of these different people are in abusive relationships with each other you know diane keaton winds up being in one with michael you of course have connie and carlo you have all of these different types of people like having relationships with their families their loved ones that wind up dragging them into ruin and i think we in america are in this relationship with the godfather that we can't really break out of we love this movie I want to try to get to the bottom of why like why mm. we as a culture like yes this is our number two because I don't know why this movie has such a hold on us, honestly. I don't right. know why we're like at the strings of this movie, but I know that I'm also kind of on one of those strings. I love this movie, and yet I see so many problems with it. I agree with you. Number two is high, very high. Uh, and if you were to put this and Citizen Kane next to each other, you know, it. you're right. Like, I don't know if this does everything that Citizen Kane right? does. Right, like Citizen Kane pushes the culture forward. It invents things. Yeah. It is grand. It is an everything movie. And I don't know exactly what The Godfather does, but yet we love it. But aren't, and I, I hope I'm not being wrong, but isn't Shawshank Redemption like number one on the IMDb list? You know, it's like, it's that same, I think, element, I think that we're coming across. Like, it's the people's favorite. I will say that we talked about this early on in the first episode when Citizen Kane when we're done with this, we have to look at everything in comparison to Citizen Kane. Does it still belong on top of the list? At this point, I believe so. To, to me, the two biggest, most influential films that we've watched on this list are 2001 and Citizen Kane. Uh, I, and I would put Wizard of Oz as Thank like you. A, I was about to say Wizard yeah, of Oz. And as, like a, as a close third. Um, those three films all represent something that is so giant in cinema. I think we are also missing some things from current cinema that hopefully we'll get into this mix as well. But um, this is a part of our American culture. But if we're talking from a film point of view, I don't know I mean, I if think, it's number two. I don't know if it's number yeah. two. I'd like to talk about this after we see number two yeah. of The Godfather even. I think why it might be the people's favorite is it has a few things that I think people really love. Mm -hmm. One, it's incredibly quotable. Mm -hmm. This movie is just packed with quotable Oh, yeah, my lines. God, the whole thing. And two, a tough guy cries. And I really think there's something to the fact that we elevate a movie where a tough guy cries. We're like, oh, a tough guy cries. This movie is now important to me. Mm. This movie is deep. I think... I think a dude like Marlon Brando just has to cry and we're like, yes, you're mad. But Marlon Brando's always crying. Girl. I know. 
he cries a lot and he's on the list a lot. We go to the movies to access emotions, mm -hmm. you know? And so I think a movie with this sense of bigness that also lets you cry a tear that's similar to Shawshank makes a movie feel monumental. Well, okay. Uh, look, I'm going to break it down even further and say I don't disagree with anything that you said. Um, I think there's a lot at play. I think this is a list dominated by men. I think this is a list dominated by the 70s. I think this is a list that is the epitome of 70s cinema, right? Uh, from behind the camera, from in front of the camera. It is a quotable movie. It is a fun movie. It is... It has every major actor. It, like, it really is. It's it's all of everything. But it's... Um, I think there's a lot of male fantasy in this movie. So when you're talking about a list where we are, you know... Maybe it is a list that's voted on by a lot more men than than women. I mean, I think we can and, and by white men uh, over you know people of color. I think we can just see that from the representation on this list. I think this scratches an itch that is epitomizing the exact problem with this list, which is it's very based on this '70s culture. People who were brought up by '70s culture, people who. Uh, we're making their best films in this time. I want to see an influx on this list that that switches it up. And I believe this film will drop. And um, I don't think it should drop off the list. I don't think oh, it God, should, no, no. I don't think it should even drop out of the top ten. But two is a very high thing, a very high position to put it in. And like I said, those are the three that I think of are Assistant Kane, two thousand and one, and Wizard of Oz as three undeniable changing the culture of cinema visually and uh, emotionally. I, I just, and this feels like a great, great right. piece of American filmmaking. You know, yeah, it's like- those changed everything. Mm -hmm. This inspired more mafia movies. It just feels more narrow to me. Yeah, I don't, I don't disagree with it. But let's talk about this more as we go to Godfather 2, because I think this conversation, these movies live together side by side so much. They've been put together. They've been, like I said, they are one in many respects. They are one and, 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 uh, and Coppola, you know, continues to kind of massage it. The third one's this weird outlier, but, uh, but like, yes, I am, I'm, I'm interested to have this conversation and let some time pass before we go to Godfather 2. Uh, no, we're going to talk about it next week. Oh, geez. Okay. Well, then there we go. <laughs> um, all right. So then we will go back next week to do a little bit more of a deep dive into Godfather 2 and then kind of make our final thesis statement. Uh, so Amy, you said it right there. Godfather 2 is next on the list, so we have a call to action for all of you. We ask you to reveal something that you know is true about a friend, a loved one, a family member. You don't have to tell us who they are, but reveal that you know their secret and tell us what that secret is. Whoa. Not like not not a secret. Like, I'm not saying like people are gonna get divorced, Paul. I'm not saying like you could say like I know that uh a friend of mine cheated on his wife. We don't have to know anything. We're not saying names. We're not saying anything. I want to know your secrets. You can do it in a phony voice if you're worried. Yes. You don't have to say your name either. You know, let's, let's keep it real. Say um, somebody else's name. Yeah, you could, but you could keep it vague. Anyway, call the unspooled voicemail line at 747-666-5824. That's 747-666-5824. I can't believe you're trying to break up families. I'm not. I'm not saying label. I'm not saying label. Yeah, I could say a friend of mine did this. I have plenty of friends. You don't have to know which one it is. It, it's your fault if you're trying to guess it. Um, all right. Uh, we will see you next week for The Godfather 2. The saga continues.
Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.